Welcome to The Great Unlearn. Join me, your host, Cal, as we dive deep into understanding and unlearning the programming within us. Let's uncover your inner truth for a life with newfound purpose and freedom. Get ready to question it all in The Great Unlearn. really listen to your intuition, stay guided, stay open. Most times your tragedies are your miracles. But when you run smack in the wall and you smash your face in the wall in the dark, you can do a 180 degree turn and say, I know it's that way. And there's something about tragedy that is I think the most clear moment of guidance. I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I don't give people information I can't prove. Look, I'm not trying to tell you what to think. And we've built this team to really pursue this dream of free media. And you sort of get an idea that medicine isn't exactly what we think it is. And the best aren't always the ones that are recognized as the best. And they will destroy an idea long before they'll celebrate one especially if it doesn't make them more money, forget about it. Try getting insurance for a film that is in headlines all over the world. Of all the films that could have been sued, this one is like this is at the front of the line. This is real. There is, a, there is carnage like no one could ever imagine. And I want to get to the bottom of it. So the two major provisions that were put in place to evolve these products and fix the problem of death and injury being caused our government never did it. Everyone's saying we're spreading misinformation. The truth is, is we are so airtight. We were told that we trust them. Like you don't question a priest and you don't question your doctor. Like they know best. This is like a murder trial where the murderer is the one doing all of your forensics. If we all start listening to that guidance that I think is inside of all of us, there is no darkness in the world that can control that light. Welcome to the Great Unlearn, Dell Big Tree. By the way, fucking amazing name. Thank you, thank you. Um, it's it was sort of by choice. I grew up my father's name. I grew up with Groverland was my last name. Uh, but as it turns out, my dad that was an alias. My father grew up like on the wrong side of the tracks up in uh, Hoboken and and the New Jersey area. He eventually broke out of jail. Crazy story. Come on. Like, you know, like an amazing miracle story. Uh, ends up going to New York. Are and, you going to share how he broke out of jail? Well, that's a pretty good story. Let's go. Because I have Dell on there. my list here. Like, I need a couple <laughs> of Dell stories. So let's fucking bang it right now. It's a really good one. My dad, um, <clears throat> you know, he was, as a, as a kid, grew up uh, condemned buildings. You know, his he had he had friends that died of malnutrition. I mean, that level of poverty in, in West New York, Hoboken, New Jersey. So grew up life of crime, mostly just petty burglary and, and things like that. And um, he was one of these guys that uh, got an option when he was right around 17 years old, got busted again. And, you know, at a certain point, he's been to boys' homes. He's been, you know, where they're beating the crap out of you and, you know, just just one of those lives on the wrong track, you know, and uh, had an option to join the Army. Like back when it, there was a point where, like, you're either going to go to jail Mm. or you join the army. So he joined the army. He ended up missing Vietnam by like a, a blink of an eye, got out right before. And, um, and then was, got back to hanging out with his, his old buddies and, and got into trouble again. And um, this time when he was arrested, 
all the cops knew him and they were like, you know, we got you this time, buddy. There's no other, there's no second, third chances. You're going away for a long time. And they walked him down uh, in the precinct there. They took him downstairs to a, it's just a holding cage. And he said, you know, I was sitting there and just, it just so profoundly hit him that this isn't my life. This isn't, this isn't my life. This isn't supposed to be happening. And he said he just, he reached down and just tightened his shoelaces, started tightening his shoelaces and walked over to the jail cell door and it had been like left ajar. So he just threw it open and just started running down the hallway. And here come the officers that arrested him. They're bringing, you know, some, you know, public defender of sorts. And he blasts past them, knocks them out of the way and runs up this staircase now, police officers are shouting and yelling, fugitive on the loose. He's, they're diving at him, jumps across the tops of the desks and out the front door and leaps. You know, it's like raining out, you know, leaps the marble stairs down to the ground and then just tosses off. You know, I guess he's like he's wearing some sort of a trench coat and is now just running for his life. Bullets flying past him. And he turned the corner and he's running up the street and... uh realizes that it's just one of those epically long city streets, you know, of, of, of you know, apartment buildings and just that go on forever. And he just ran to the first sort of glass door he f- could find and went in and just hit all the buzzers, right? There's like an indoor, inside door, it's locked, hits all the buzzers, hoping someone buzzes him in. He's standing there in the glass door waiting at any moment, officer is going to come around yeah. and just open fire and someone buzzes him in. And he said he felt like there was this, heightened state of awareness he'd never experienced before where he saw all of the, you know, all that would take place if he went up the stairs and decided to run across the roofs or if he went down to the basement where it was a floor through, like it was one of those apartments, it was all the way underneath and comes out on the other street. And so he went downstairs climbing through bicycles and, you know, old, you know, strollers and things to get to the other side where there's this storm door that opens up into the street. And you can hear sirens going and like, you know, get out of the streets, fugitive on the loose, like all these things going on. And so he eventually just picks his moment, you know, hops out and just hops in the crowd, starts walking, trying to be cool. And out of nowhere, this cab driver is just standing there, just wraps him up in a big bear, like holds him. And starts screaming, I got, this is the guy, this is the guy. And my, I always asked my dad, you know, what did you do? Like, he never told me. He said, he said, I wasn't a violent person, but I will tell you the worst thing I ever did to a human being was what I did to that cab driver that was holding on to me. <laughs> <laughs> so he breaks loose. He's running for his life again, makes it to an alley and, um, you know, finds this again, like these storm doors. I'll do the same thing. So he rips the storm door open an alley, jumps down in and goes to go through the door to go through the basement. And this Doberman jumps up in the, in the door and he can't, he's like, Oh my God, I'm trapped. And he can hear all the sirens and everything. And he just pulls out his identification, uh, and burns it just like I, you know, everything that I am, you know, he just he just leaves it right there. And he said it was his first prayer that he ever said in his life. You know, something like, you know, I've had friends that are Catholic. I, you know, I've heard about God. I don't know what you are. I don't know how this works. All I know is if you can get me out of this, get me out of this, I'll pay you back. And uh, 
and then eventually things sort of quiet down and he pushes open the storm door and climbs up this telephone pole and starts running across the roofs. And he sees a bus pull up down and somehow gets like down that street, doesn't remember how. This is all I remember is that the, the doors to that bus close behind him. And the bus driver looks at him and he reaches into his pockets and he's got no wallet. No, it's all been left in the vest with nothing, his no money. And the bus driver just looks him in the eyes and said, son, go get in the back of the bus and lay down. So he goes to the back of the bus, lays down, and the bus driver drives off of route, just takes the whole bus. Come on. Drives over the Lincoln Tunnel, holds out $2 and said, son, there's a bus heading into New York City. It's going through the Lincoln Tunnel right now. Take this, get on that bus, and don't ever come back here. Never knew the guy, never said two words to him, walked up, grabbed the two bucks, hopped on that bus, took it into New York, and over several life-changing experiences, including me, you know, me and my mom ended up becoming a unity minister and, and uh, has, has spent his life, I think, paying God back. So, oh that- Oh my <laughs> God! That is a banger of a story. That's a banger of a story. And I apologize for the, we had the landscapers outside. I think it still works. Yes. I think it overcomes weed whackers. Yes. It's, yes. it's one of those good right. ones. Thank God you have a booming but voice. So, right. So that was, that was Groverlin. Like, so he ended up just choosing a name to sort of hide from all of that. And uh, so when I turned 18, um, my mom's maiden name was Big Tree. My parents are still together. Uh, you know, great love story there. But um, I wanted a name that, was attached to something that meant something. And I really appreciated that heritage. Uh, Mohawk, my, my grandfather left the reservation upstate New York to you know um, work for Chrysler and have a family. And so, um, so I took, as soon as I turned 18, I went and told dad, dad, your name doesn't mean a lot to me. And I'm glad it worked for you, but I'm gonna you know, grab mom's name. And so I switched over to Dell Big Tree then. God, and it is a that is a banger of a name. Yeah. Gosh. Yeah. So, well, thank you for sharing yeah. that story. Didn't plan one on of, telling that story. <laughs> one, of the, one of many to come, I hope. Yeah. So, listen, you came from the Malibu area, and now you live in Austin. Correct. And just to you know, I know the story, but I, I think it, it just speaks to who you are and your wife Lee, and and just how you have this uh, kind of surrendering to what's in front of you. Um, so if you wouldn't mind sharing how you ended up here. Yeah. Um, so I got really deeply involved in the vaccine discussion, which I'm sure we'll get into some of that. I'd, I'd made a documentary, Vaxxed, uh, and found myself traveling the country and really speaking a lot <clears throat> about vaccine risks. And one of the beautiful things that happened was right when I was about to go on tour, there's a lot of attention. We got kicked out of Tribeca Film Festival a lot of heat and anger towards us from most of mainstream media. Which, by the you way, know. was the best thing that happened. Right. right. I mean, well, so, but all of that, right. All of it created, getting kicked out of Tribeca ended up being the best advertising you could ever dream of. We were like one of the number one trending stories on every social media platform in the world for about two weeks, which sort of set the stage and changed my life forever. But right as that was going on, we were living in a small house that we owned in, in um, Eagle Rock, just right outside of Pasadena, California. And my mother-in-law, who's had a really brilliant life, creative genius, 
really wanted to, you know, sort of up level where certainly I was traveling. I mean, I was going to be traveling like crazy. I was really somewhat worried about my, my family's safety. So she bought this beautiful home in Malibu for us to live in. And it was just, it was paradise. And we were in there and it was brilliant because I was then able to travel and know that there was like several gates to get to where my family was and should some crazy person or whatever. I mean, it was just, the timing was beautiful. Uh, and it was a beautiful home, but we reached a point with the passing of SB 277 and, and then moving into, which, as, which is what, well, that's the right. Of course, the, the law in California written by this Senator Richard Pan, that law essentially said that every child that was going to go to a public or private school would have to be vaccinated. Um, and so that sort of triggered California and it sort of more and more laws. Then there was SB 276, which really went to go after doctors, any doctor that writes an exemption for a child that has a, a medical issue will now be under review. And so it just started feeling like there was this Gestapo moving into California. And I had been receiving several calls. I mean, the work that I was doing, friends that would call and say, my, you know, in one instance, a friend of ours, son, had been doing some work on the roof with her, uh, with his father and fell through a skylight and she took him to the ER. And while there, they're like, you know, your child has to get a DTaP vaccine for the tetanus. So she said, well, we don't do vaccines. And then all of a sudden they just went crazy. And now we're going to call child protective services or we're not letting your kid out of this hospital to get the tetanus vaccine and all this pressure and what I would do. And I had fielded a lot of these calls where I find a lawyer, there's lawyers and people that I said, we'll call this person. But I just thought, man, if that ever happens with my family and I'm out, you know, speaking for freedom and, but I'm not home and I'm not there to handle that situation, it'd be really scary. And it also just said to me that California the realization was sinking in on me that I now live in a state that believes that, that wants it to be illegal for me to not vaccinate my child or to raise my children the way I see fit. And if I, you know, the writing's on the wall and I shouldn't be living in a place where my ideals, things that are really important to me are actually now starting to be considered illegal or they're attempting to move in that direction. And I said to my wife, it, you know, at what point we all read the stories of Nazi Germany and asked ourselves, you know, it didn't happen overnight. Like, why did people stay? Why didn't you leave your homes? Why didn't you move to another country? Obviously many did, but those that didn't, and I said, honey, I'm, I'm really concerned that California is starting to feel like Nazi Germany here. And I think there's a lot of signs and people around us that are going through things in hospitals that really are marking an, an end to the beauty and the reason we moved here. But my concern is we live in paradise. We have this beautiful home that your mother has so graciously provided us that has made us safe, but it is stunning. We were, you know, a, a block off of the beach, mm. swimming pool and, you know, beautiful views. And I said, I just think that this is one of those things that could cloud our vision. It's going to cloud, you know, our intuition, which is, is telling me it's time to get out of here. And she said, I don't think I could ever leave this home. I said, I know that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> that's, what I'm, that's what I'm saying. I know, we're kind of fucked right, here. Right, we're kind of, I think it may be that moment is what I'm trying to say to you, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. And, and your response is exactly what I'm afraid of, you know? <laughs> yeah. 
So, you know, but we had the conversation because we've, we've got a great open relationship and talk things through. And, you know, that was going to be tabled for a while. I was like, okay, obviously <laughs> this isn't the moment. And then I don't think it was 10 days later um, that uh, our house burned to the ground. Uh, the Woolsey fire, which started up in Tobanga Canyon. Lee had gone to New York to spend some time. She took our daughter, Thea, with her to New York. And so it was just my son, Ever, and I. And uh, I had picked him up. He was playing with a really good friend of his in, in Malibu. And uh, they were like, oh, there's a fire in Calabasas, a fire in Calabasas. They were all excited about it. You know? How far away is that? I don't know. It's like 25 miles, 20 miles, depending on how you look at it. Like we're already by the beach and this is all the way up over the top of the mountain. And I just didn't think about it. I probably should have. And, you know, kids were all excited. But I went home and went to bed. And the next day was like one of those days where I finally, I actually had a whole day off, which had been a really long time. So I got up. I like, I watched the three dogs. Like, this is something I'd never do. Holy like, but, shit. but it's like, it's that, does that open a day? Like, let's just watch the dogs. They stink. Let's do some laundry. And somebody texts me, Dell, I just saw that Malibu's been evacuated. You know, do you need anything? And I was like, evacuated I'm, I'm still here <laughs> i'm doing laundry and washing dogs and so i uh immediately ran out my door and sure as you know the hillside is on fire right above my house and the wind is blowing towards me at like 70 miles an hour and i'm like that fire cannot be 30 minutes away i mean like before this thing and so i screamed to my son ever grab clothes dirty, clean, whatever, throw them in a bag. Like I'm trying to get a hold of Lee, just grabbing some clothes. And, you know, she luckily got through to me because I really wasn't thinking clear. I was just thinking, don't be the idiot that dies. You know, I didn't, you don't know in, when you live in the hills like that. I don't know. I'm seeing the fire above me, but I don't know that it hasn't wrapped around somewhere else oh. and I can't get out. I'm like, I just, we got to get out of here. Yeah. You don't know necessarily what direction to go. Don't know where it's going. And there's really only one way out. Okay. We're, we're, we're two blocks off of the PCH, which is the only road out of Malibu. And so uh, got in the car, Lee gets through to me and she said, did you grab, you know, my jewelry and all the hard drives, all of our photos, you know, truth is, this is the second house that we've had burned down. So she was like really good about it. Let's at least get the photos this time. Yeah. You know? So I got the hard drives, okay, got phew. her jewelry. The only thing I really, I think of all of it that I regret the most is walking by her six guitars that were all laid out around the piano. She's a musician and those guitars represented, you know, her career and her life. And I just thought, and you should probably pack those up. And I just thought, mm, and I, you know, left. And uh, the fact that you, you've clearly said this before, you didn't just swallow that one. Cause yeah. <laughs> just how did she take, take it when you're like, I looked at them. And I you, you, you just, there's something in you that just doesn't believe it's really going to yeah. go down. And it was a, like, it was like a cement, you know, Adobe style home. And it, there were no, we didn't have trees directly around us. I mean, I don't know. I just, yeah. though I saw it coming, I thought, you know, what are the odds? Well, you know, we ended up sitting on the PCH, took about five hours to make it what's normally about a 15 minute drive from our house to Santa Monica, five hours. They opened up every lane, every car. We we're just sitting there watching the hillside burn. And I'm sure everyone was having the same conversation with their kids in the car, which is that comes down the road. We're going to run down this hill and jump in the ocean, you know? And, uh, but, um, Everything, everything was gone. The house was not just burned. Our house was cremated. I mean, <laughs> I finally, 
when I finally got back to see it, I mean, there was nothing, not a piece of steel. I, I kind of thought, well, man, I really kind of love my cooking set we got when we got married. <laughs> totally like disintegrated. There were like steel girders, like bent over, melted over. Uh, so it was uh, quite an event. But all that to say that, you know, telling the story of my father, it sort of leads me into, you know, it leads to being raised in a family that truly, truly believed and raised us uh, with the idea that God is protecting you and that nothing is an accident. And there is a de destiny in a, in a drive to life, like find, like stand in, you know, really listen to your intuition, stay guided, stay open. Um, so I've been pretty, I'm pretty good at handling what for most people would be tragedies, I guess. And luckily, you know, knock on wood, my children are healthy and it hasn't been something like that, but houses burning and things disappearing for me, I just, Felt like, all right, well, that's the answer to that question. It really helped us move. And then, you know, Austin was somewhere. I had actually been in Austin the year I made Vaxxed. I was working with Andy Wakefield, who lived here in, in Austin. And so I had some understanding of this town. Lee, we had rented a house for one month while, you know, I was going back and forth. And so when it came down to it, we're trying to figure out where are we going to live, um, I actually... We were looking at potentially being in Colorado with my family, which I don't want to be that, you know, I just thought, wait, what am I doing? I don't want to be that close. I love my family, but not that close. Yeah. And then I happened to just right in that so, like moment where we needed to make a decision. Um, I was speaking at the Capitol in Austin, Texas, and um, it, I gave a fairly one of the more dramatic um, speeches I've given where I ended up like, taking a yellow star. It was right at the moment where the Hasidic Jewish community in Rockland County, New York had just been curfewed. Essentially, they were not allowed in their, their, into their synagogues for Passover if they were caught walking down the street because they weren't vaccinating and the big measles fear and they would be arrested or fined. And I just said, we, for to the, all of the Hasidic Jewish community in New York, they never believed you would experience this level of oppression again and attack on your religious beliefs. You know, I said, how are they going to know you're not vaccinated? I mean, maybe we need a symbol. Like maybe we need to return to this. And I held up a yellow star oh, and I said to all of, you know, my brothers and sisters there in New York that are going through this, I want you to know that I stand with you in this. And I pinned the star to my jacket. It's been misinterpreted by some people that I equated the anti-vaccine issue to uh, the yellow star. Course. But the truth was it was very directly to the oppression and curfew uh, keeping the Hasidic Jewish community out of their own synagogues. It just seems to me that's insanity. But that day, uh, right before I gave that talk, um, Polly Tommy, who was a co-producer on uh, Vaxxed, got up and said, hey, you know, this next speaker, you all know who he is. And come on, we got to get Del Bigtree to move down to Austin, Texas. I mean, she had no idea all the things that had happened had happened. And I was just standing there thinking, Austin, Texas. Yeah, I like it here. And I called Lee and said, uh, remember Austin? Like, what do you think about maybe Austin? And she's like, oh, yeah, let's, let's check it out. And so we started flying down and spent a few trips till we found the, the house that worked. And so here we are. It's kind of a, I'm a long-winded guy, man. I mean, I know we, we slotted an hour here. But I, I mean, love it's it. Just, we uh, have to push that we, a little we, bit. We could, uh, we could end up uh, going on a while. But th these are things that, you know, um, 
it's the part you want to share. You know, I think that it's, I, I've been that guy. You look at people that have some form of celebrity. We just, we see these snippets of their lives, like as though they're separate from us. And I just think we're all experiencing miracles. And I really like to sort of celebrate the fact that we're all going through those. And sometimes, and I think most times, your tragedies are your miracles. You just got to wait it out. You yeah. got to sit with it. How yeah. many times, I've always said that, you know, how many times are the most difficult, those, when the relationship falls apart or a house burns down or any one of those things, when we look at those moments, we're like, God, I'm having a really great day. and Things are going really great. And that sort of talking heads moment, you know, my God, how did I get here? Yeah, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. you reflect back to those moments, like those sort of that last tragic moment where you were totally lost up until there, didn't really have a focus or a guidance. And there's something about tragedy. I always say it's, it's like you're wandering blindfolded in the dark and you don't know where, most of the time in life, we don't know where we're going. But when you run smack in the wall and you smash your face in the wall in the dark, you can do a 180 degree turn and say, I know it's that way. Yes. You know what I mean? It's the opposite direction. And there's something about tragedy that is, I think, the most clear moment of guidance of, of, you know, I know this isn't what I want, you know? And so I, I like to try and as a, you know, evolve with my own life to be less and less frenetic in the tragedy moments and say, I know I'm going to look at this in my rearview mirror and say, God, that was a brilliant transformative event. So let me love it. Let me just breathe into it you know, and, and be, and really take in all the details of it, you know, instead of just being blind. So they barely can tell the story, remember it. Let's just absorb it. This is like a brilliant part of life. Yes. And I know? think, I think that's a, a, a beautiful way, a beautiful kind of noticing. And I mean, we, we, our son, Jake, who's 18 now broke his jaw in early November. Mm basketball season, basically at that point we thought was going to be over. It's his favorite sports, his senior year. Mm. I mean, we didn't know what to do, you know, except, you know, uh, understanding that this was his to go through and knowing that in the early days it was going to be really hard, but there was going to be a moment where it was all going to make sense. Yeah. And, the, the amount of growth and maturity that we've witnessed, this is a few months ago already. And I said to him the other day, I said, man, you're just like, you're just really fucking cool. You know, and not like the cool way where we want to be accepted, but I'm like, you're just a, like, I've always enjoyed hanging out with you, but like, there's something in the way about you, something about the way you carry yourself right now, that I just love. And I just love being around your energy. Even if we're not talking and you're doing something, when you walk in a room, it's different, man. Like mm -hmm. you just, so I think something really happened to him in what I would say, listen, he had his mouth wired shut. And in that moment coming out of surgery and being at home and him coming out of anesthesia, I looked at him and held him and, and, and obviously cried with him, but I'm like, I've never felt that helpless or hopeless in my life. Mm -hmm. And here he is at 17 having to endure all this. And I'm like, I don't know what this is like, Yeah. but whatever you need to feel, 
feel it. And he didn't bypass that opportunity. He felt all of it. He yeah. was angry. He was punching the wall. He was crying. And he got to he got to experience all of that. And I think just getting all of that out, coming on the other side of it, there is the gratitude. And I think he's felt into that, that his life, he has a lot more appreciation for for all the things he's able to do now. But um, I'm glad I'm glad you kind of brought that up because I think what happens in these tragedies, all the old ways that we have to protect ourselves and convince ourselves that, you know, things are okay. Those go out the window. Yeah. And we, we're just left with ourselves if we choose to. Yeah. I think that's what you're talking about. Can yeah. we just sit in that, not try to make it better, not fix it. Right. That was my role. It's like, don't try to fix what he's going through right now. Just hold space for him to, to be there. And I have to go through my sadness too yeah. for what he's going through. He's my son. And um, yeah. And so I'm glad we started off that way too. Because, you know, my podcast is really about that. Um, you know, I've had a number of people on like yourself who are, are well known. Right. Mm -hmm. And to me, we will get into the things that, you, you know, that are your work, but I want to get into who, who the person is behind the work. And yeah. I think in just that first 30 minutes, I think you've done an amazing job <laughs> of laying that out. But with that in mind, let's, let's get into a little bit of the work and tell me about what the transition was like setting up your studio here and you know, I know how you've been received here with, yeah. with huge loving yeah. arms, but it's, it's, it's been amazing. It's like uh, growing an instant family. You know, it's really been amazing. Um, I didn't, we didn't come here to meet anybody, right? It was just like, well, that's a town we can live in. It's kind of some simple decisions. My wife grew up in New York City. She likes, I mean, no matter how rustic we decide to get, she still wants to be able to get to a mall if she, you know, if it's really a bad day. <laughs> I don't, and that can come across the wrong way. She is not an outward generated person, but she just, sure. you know, nice restaurant, a good, you know, some nice clothing, some fashion mm -hmm. around. We're just not the type of people, you know, that can just live in the middle of nowhere. Um, so, Ben, coming here, so many people just immediately started finding this brilliant group of people. And maybe the, the catalyst for that was that I was lucky enough um, in leaving LA, you know, in that moment that it was happening, you know, I had a, a really solid staff of people, my, you know, and, and those that are really my partners, my COO, Catherine Layton, who has been with me from the moment we started uh, the nonprofit, the Informed Consent Action Network, and my executive producer, I, I, I brought another CBS producer, the most talented person I worked with when I was at the doctors on, you know, she was there too. And slowly, you know, as we had sort of grown big enough, I finally said, I think I can get close. We can get close to your salary. Are you willing to really risk it all and come and help me, you know, build really our dream? Our dream was to do media uh, with all the understanding and, and the, the rules by which, you know, which is like, you know, I make sure that I have multiple sources to everything that I state that I can prove our point. You know, I, I act like we can be sued just like when I worked for Dr. Phil or the doctor's television show, look, we can't be libelous. We've got to make sure we nail this to the wall, but imagine being able to take our ability to investigate stories, but not be told what we can and can't cover because of the sponsors in television. And people just don't realize how much that affects 
what you can do in our case on the doctors, you know, we were doing, I was doing, you know, uh, interstitials for Pfizer and Merck and, you know, these pharmaceutical companies. So there were certain topics like the whistleblower story that was at the center of VAX that I couldn't cover. And so that, you know, we built this team in California to really pursue this dream of free media. Um, and uh, when I decided to leave, you know, I kind of had like these questioning eyes that were all like, so what does that mean for us? You know, and I said, look, I'm going to keep going. No matter what, I'm not going to stop what I'm doing. And I can't, I, I can't tell you, you have families, you have some people have spouses that, you know, have other jobs and I can't, I, I don't know what the future is for you. I only know mine, you know, and I've always represented that I'm going to sort of pursue that, but we'll make it work. However, it's mm. long distance, whatever. And so it was funny. We almost bought a house, as I said, in Colorado. And um, about time, when was this? This would have been, I've been in, in Austin. This would be two years in July coming up. So like two Novembers ago when it was when, um, uh, the, it was the, right after Thanksgiving, I was before, after, anyway, that was when that Woolsey fire happened. So that holiday I went and we went to Colorado and we didn't have a house and looked, we looked at a beautiful house, but right then, so almost two years ago, um, when I finally bailed out of it and decided we went and found somewhere in Austin, I said to my team, I, I've given up on the Colorado thing. That's not where we're guided to go. We're, we're going to buy a house in Austin. And Catherine, my CEO says, oh, well, we'll move to Austin. You know, we're not. We were never going to go to Colorado, man, screw that place. But uh, <laughs> Texas, sure. Yeah, Texas is cool. And so Catherine's my COO, um, the director of my show, and really the our creative director, her, her husband, Patrick. So they were both like, yeah, we'll sell our house. We'll do that. We'll make that happen. And then Jen Sherry, my executive producer, you know, her husband had a, is a thriving, you know, um, wine business in California. But um she, you know, they talked it through and said, yeah, we're going to come down and start looking at houses. And then next thing I knew, the whole, the whole team came down for the most part, except for like, you know, one field producer and one editor, which they can do that really anywhere they want. So our whole team came here. Um, but, you know, it was a really, again, you know, faith. And this is something I haven't really talked about because for various reasons, but right when we moved down here, I had come down in um, July and I was flying back and forth. They were all going to come down that winter. It took time, you know, so I was just flying into California to do the show. And, you know, right as everyone was sort of picking up to come down here, we had up until that moment, all of our work was primarily funded by one donor, you know, one person that had really, I mean, there was other smaller donors. I'm not going to say they weren't there, but we were, you know, running lawsuits all over the country and winning against government agencies. And, you know, it, it was who had really helped us put Baxed on the road. And then when I started the nonprofit, you know, building this TV studio. And so uh, the Washington Post found out who that was and, and, uh, we were trying to figure out through that summer what's going on. They were asking for our tax returns. They were all over us, asking a lot of prying questions. We've shared everything. We have nothing to hide. But this hit piece came out, you know, and really went after these people that had, who I think should be celebrated when this is all over. There was, they're not the only ones. It's just, but there's a handful of really powerful donors that at least got this all moving so that we could be at the place we're at now. But, um, Right at the moment, my whole staff is coming to uh, 
Austin, Texas, the funding just disappeared. Like oh. They were like, we can't, we, we don't want to be in the limelight like this. And it's really <sighs> jeopardizing all the other things we do. And, you know, so there was this moment like, oh my God, like, and I'm talking millions of dollars. I mean, uh. we're, we've got lawsuits against government agents. We've got lawsuits all over the country. We have a, you know, a, and we'll get into that in a little bit. We'll, we're going to yeah. unpack what yeah. the whole system looks like, but yeah. So in, again, in that moment, and, and I, and I have to say the brilliant, I was just, again, you're, I'm so lucky to be surrounded. Not only my wife, who's always been supportive and we've been through these moments before, but Catherine, my COO is moving her whole family and everyone on the team. And, you know, it was, it was really February where it just sort of hit. We were trying to raise funds for the people and, you know, everyone was like, they were coming here for their new homes. And I was like, cat's like, I'm, it's February and uh, we're, we're flat. Like there's, there's nothing, we, we're not going to be able to pay payroll or anything. And so I, uh, I said, you know what, because you asked how the studio got set up. These are how things happen. Like we were going to take the whole month of February to move in. We had like one week left. And I said, let's get a, We got to get a warehouse. We got to get, just get the televisions up behind you. Just give me the big screen. We'll put the desk in front of it. Or what do we have to, I got to go to the people and we've got to, we've got to, you know, keep going. We've got to figure out a way. We certainly can't go with the pre-taped show that didn't, you know, address anything. And what was difficult about it was the high wire for people that do watch the high wire. Uh, one of the things that a lot of people talk about is it's sort of my place of hope. Like when the, everything seems lost in the weeks, just, it looks like we're, you know, we're losing everything. Everyone says like tune into the high wire and you always have this sense of hope. Like there's like, there's, there's a way forward and that we're actually winning and we just didn't see it that way. And so, you know, and, and so when we were going through this, I didn't want to depress our audience in this movement that's growing and say, we just took a missile to the front of our <laughs> ship and we're, we're, we're all, you know, in lifeboats right now, because I just felt like it'll be so demoralizing. Like yeah. I can't, I gotta stay in a place of hope. And I didn't know, I, I was never really good at asking for money. It wasn't something that was, a, you know, I was lucky that, you know, these donors and a couple of these people, individuals came along that really supported the work we were doing. But I finally had to like get over that and go to the people. And we won this lawsuit against the CDC, like right at that moment. And I was like, oh, we can announce that. And I was just having a conversation with our legal team. And they're like, look, we want to start these two civil cases. They're going to be very expensive on Monday. I was like, well, hold on, <laughs> hold on. Uh, but it hit me. I was like, you know what? I can still be positive about the high wire I can do in a closet if I have to. I mean, I can do this. We can turn on a, a, a cell phone if we have to. The high wire will always be here. But then I was really honest. I talked about the legal cases and what we had done. But I said to the audience, I need you. I mean, it's up to you. I said, on Monday, I will either say yes to very expensive legal cases that are going to be fighting for our future and our rights in the future. Or I will just have to say, pump the brakes. We can't afford that right now. I'm, I'm not a fundraiser. I'm a guy that just simply is trying to tell you the truth. And I have an amazing legal team. It's up to you now. I mean, we're all in this together. If you want to help, if you want to donate, we're looking for just recurring donations. If you could get involved right now, it'd be really helpful. And by the time we finished that show, uh, Catherine walked up to me. She said, well, we just made payroll. And by Monday, we had made the first time we'd really made that amount that our, our monthly costs had been for the last three years on average, we, we brought that in. And ever since then, the people have stood up and 
we've been able to just grow, you know, there's always more we could do. And, but we, we were able to, you know, really stabilize, never had to fire anybody. We, I've been in all the newspapers the last couple of weeks, been ripping us because we got the PPP. Oh, right? I see, I see right? you like, talking <laughs> about that. Yeah. Explain <laughs> that just for, so, for, I mean, I think it was originally a Washington, again, Washington Post loves us. Yeah. I mean, they're just, they're like they big, gave a million dollars right. to anti-vax organizations. Right, or right. Like but that. like we got, I think we got something like, I want to say it was like $60,000 or something <laughs> like that. And it's been the big story, right? New York Times picked it up and Forbes magazine and, you know, government funded the anti-vaccine movement at the same time they were trying to promote a vaccine. And, you know, what do you think about that? And so I was fielding all of these interviews. But the truth is, the tr real truth is, is we probably would have been screwed. <laughs> that, that, that PPP yes. just came right at that like hurdle moment. Yes, We just need to get over that. Like we, we might've had to lay off a couple of people. So they don't know how true it is. You did keep this movement alive. Oh you kept God. the high wire alive. And, but that's what it was there for, right? I mean, it was, nice. it's less about what we do. Nice. We're really proud of the work we do, but we didn't have to lay anybody off. We were able to keep our staff going and, and we didn't, we didn't apply for a PPP because now we don't need it. We're, we're solid, but so building. And so that was in a warehouse. I spent last summer in a warehouse, literally that would get up to about 98, We're like, are we going to spend like $40,000 on air conditioning a place we won't own? Right. And so we really started looking for a property and through a set of miracles and a couple of really spectacular individuals, nobody, you know, that donated, but also gave us sort of some simple loans that we could buy a property for the high wire. So now we're in our own, we're building our own sound stage. It's brilliant. We have, uh, uh, it's about a 4,000 square foot house that we've converted into offices. It's a 10 acre property. So we've got a campus now that will be there forever. You know, one of the things that we're doing to fundraise is we're building this walkway between sort of the offices and the, and the sound stage, and we're letting people buy bricks and calling it the high road, you know, because it's going to be there. We want, you know, it'd be that, that the foundation of what makes all this possible is the people and uh, whether they knew it or not, whether they knew we were really in deep there or not, they've always cared enough and, and been passionate and powerful. And so we just keep, you know, keep moving forward. And again, you know, Catherine said to me when we were in that flat broke moment, she's like, we're going to get through this and we'll be, be better because of it. And it was true the whole time, everything along my journey is, is no matter how bad something seemed, it really has led to just evolution and advancement. And so I've really come to trust it. And even I think I gained a few gray hairs, you know, through those couple of months, sure, but I can imagine, but, um, but it, I didn't lose faith. Like I, I was like, you know what? This is all going to work out. It's 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 got to be happening for a reason. I really do have that sort of faith that um, something's watching out for us, and I think it's watching out for all of us, which is is hard to for people to picture with what's going on in this world. But mm -hmm. I actually think it's a truly divine moment on this planet. Yeah, the opportunity's there, and I yeah. and I want to talk about where you see the high wire, the high wire going from here. But before we do that, I really want you to kind of lay out, um, I can the high wire and kind of how that all kind of works together and the work that, yeah, the really, I guess what would get you out of bed in the morning to do these things. Well, I, I think it's hard to start that conversation because I, I have to think there's someone listening to this that doesn't know who I am or what's happened. And so mm -hmm. what very sort of the quick, 
story is I was, you know, as I said, a producer on the CBS talks with the doctors, I won an Emmy award celebrating the science, you know, science and medicine. I have scrubbed in, you know, to ORs and shot everything from cancer removal to, you know, brain surgeries and even, you know, sex change operations. I've seen it all. I've watched miracle workers and I've watched really bad surgeons that no one would know except I was in there and said, this person's talentless. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you sort of get an idea that medicine isn't exactly what we think it is. And the best aren't always the ones that are recognized as the best. In fact, what I really found when people say like, what did you learn from working on the doctors? I would say the biggest thing that I learned was that the true pioneers, those people we make movies about that are, you know, looking at ways to, for instance, one case of brain surgery where they have found a way to travel around the brain and the hemispheres using cameras this guy made himself to remove tumors without ever cutting away brain tissue. Mayo Clinic is suing him. Everyone's trying to shut the guy down and he's never had anyone die and he's working miracles. Uh, You know, another back surgeon that's just doing things in, in ways that no one ever imagined. Every time I would get a story of what was truly, I mean, what was ironic? It was the ones I thought to myself, that is actually a miracle. Like I just watched a miracle take place. Those doctors that are on that level, that are really pushing the envelope into a beautiful space, they're always under siege. They are all, and they're not being sued by their patients. They're being sued by their coworkers or the hospitals or the university that doesn't want the way chemo is done or the way a brain surgery is done or the way they don't want it changing. And I think most of us, and even me walking around always believed, man, especially in America, we're getting, we're getting the cutting edge science, right? Whatever's happened, whatever the best, the best is, it's rising to the top and everyone's following that lead. And I am here to tell you nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, It is the slowest moving animal, the evolution of medicine and science. In fact, like I said, they will destroy an idea long before they'll celebrate one, especially if it doesn't make them more money, forget about it. Um, And that was disconcerting. Mm -hmm. So, so anyway, while working on the doctors, um, I stumbled upon a, I actually was tipped off by one of my sources that said there's a whistleblower inside of the CDC that's going to come forward and say they've committed scientific fraud on the vaccine safety studies. And especially, most specifically, the MMR autism study, the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, and its connection to autism. Um, this whistleblower should be coming forward in about two weeks. And I was like, wow, that's a huge story. I pitched it on the doctor's. Uh, my executive producers laughed at me. Like, <laughs> yeah, okay, sure. Yeah, we're gonna just, like we're just be like the one you know Emmy awarding award winning medical talk show attacks the CDC. Oh, and let's just piss off Merck while we're at it. That's you know funding half the show. <laughs> it's about like that thing they sounded just like you did. <laughs> I, I wasn't surprised, but anyway, that that led to so, so many miracles that made that happen. But I ended up making the documentary backs about that whistleblower and all the scientists that you know really support the idea that vaccines are contributing to this autism epidemic, and uh, and of course, what Vax really did was allowed several families to truly tell their story. And the movie is. Uh, it's moving, it's powerful, um, it's really something special. And, and I say that is 
you know, I had been wanting to make movies my whole life. And with that film, when it was finished, I remember having tears in my eyes as I watched it and just thinking, who made that movie? Ugh. Because there's no one in this room talented enough to do that. Like it, it was, it transcended all of us. It was, it was, I always think of the, they say the sculptor looks at the rock and then ends up saying, I didn't make the sculpture. I just removed the rock that was in the <sighs> way. And Vaxxed is really one of those projects and it changed my life forever. Um, and so out of that, I'd been traveling for about a year. We bought a bus that said Vaxxed on the side of it. Um, it was a really weird film release, started with getting kicked out of Tribeca. But we had every theater that would pick the film up would be attacked by a hospital nearby or doctors were threatened to pick it or a local medical university. It was crazy. Or sometimes it'd be a bomb threat or just threats, threats, threats. And so it's so, what was amazing about it was normally a film like Vaxxed will maybe have its moment at Tribeca. It'll get some hubbub and you'll get like a two week release at the seven art houses in America and it's done. Wow. Yeah. But it's gone. But not this film because each art house that started with art houses would get like bomb threats or whatever, <laughs> and they would freak out and then they postpone and we'd fight to hold on to it and had a brilliant distribution company called Cinema Libre that just stood with us and fought for every screening. But what it did was it took that two weeks and it spread it out over like a year. I mean, we had to fight for every theater. Only we could only get one to pull it off. You know, we managed like every weekend. Oh, we got one to do it. And we would show up to be a line down the block. I mean, it was so wanted and needed that it was packing every theater it went to. And then slowly larger theaters started seeing, oh my God, they're selling out. And again, they'd be threatened. But pharma and all these shills and everybody that wanted to stop this story made the biggest mistake, not only just getting us kicked out of Tribeca, but slowing our release down to we were in the public eye for a straight year. <laughs> Every weekend, we were making headlines in some paper, still pushing this agenda that was going to get children killed and everyone wanted to see it because <laughs> it was so incredibly, you know, censored and, and horrific. I got to see what's going on in there. So it was just this amazing tour. And we had this bus that we're just driving city to city. And, you know, parents started signing the, the, the children who had been injured, their names of the bus. There's just thousands of names. It's a powerful Oof. monument now to vaccine injury in this issue. At the end of that year, um, I really, we were, this it was this amazing thing. We we're doing Q and A's after every screening and like the second screening we did, we were at um, Angelica Film Center in New York. Uh, we'd been kicked out of Tribeca Film Festival and Angelica calls us. Now, just to get an understanding of timing and making a film, when you're going to a film festival, you know, we had like 30 days before like they were gonna announce it. And then in a month, we're gonna play at Tribeca. Usually you're just trying to get your titles done up the last minute and get that film like buttered up because it wasn't finished when you submitted it, you yeah. know? And then if you get a good response, you, you take that in, you edit it, and then you got a couple months, and then maybe, you know, the Tribeca film releases to theaters. Well, the week we were announced, a month before the event, essentially, we get, a, you know, we get kicked out. We're in every headline in the world, and Angelica Film Center says, we'll screen your film on Friday. And I was like, um, wow, first, that, thank you. That's awesome. Can we, like, push that back? Back, like a month because we weren't even going to be at Tribeca until 
a month from now. How about you, you know, we'll be there the night we should have been at the festival. We'll, you know, I got my. Yeah, my yeah thing, you guys, you're thinking cap on. Cap on. <laughs> well, like we're at Angelica. The guy's <laughs> like, you're the biggest story in media today. I don't know where you're going to be a month from now. I'm not making any offers a month. From now. I'm telling you right now. If you want a theater, we'll, I don't even know if I agree with you. I'm just telling you, we only care because you're getting all the publicity right now. Friday is the day. So we like crush this movie together. Ooh. I mean, the hard thing is all the titles. We got the names right. Is everyone spelled right? Like just who, who, who's this guy? I don't remember the spell, you know, all of those things. Uh, we didn't even have the movie insured. Had never insured it, which, you know, people don't realize, you know. Yeah, what's. So you get a movie insured to be indemnified from anything, any recognition of somebody or, you know, all of the different things, some misstatement or whatever, right? Oh, shit. So imagine like this, you know, that we didn't have any money, so we shouldn't, you're supposed to insure a movie as soon as you start shooting. <laughs> We're going into Angelica Film Center. I called a friend of mine that has made indie films and said, you got to help me get insurance. Try getting insurance for a film that is in headlines <laughs> of being baby killers and like everything all over the world. How? <laughs> how are we going to do this? I want to like, hear how this all, happened. Like of all the films that could have been sued, this one is like <laughs> in the front of the line. You yes. know what I mean? You're making outrageous statements. Tribeca said you lied. The science is off. You know, you got doctors and scientists involved. Anyway, um, so we didn't tell Angelica that you, you can't really screen a film that's not insured. And so the first screening, like on that Friday, was like a noon screening. You know, I'm like, how's, how's the insurance coming along? She's like, nah, we're, we're working on it. We're like, we got two possibilities hanging there, hanging there, hanging there. I was like, all right, well, we're going to screen. Though. Hopefully they don't find out, you know. So to get back to the point, the real story was the second screening, I, you know, um, I ended up being curious, like, who is who is this line down the block? Like, mm -hmm. why are they here? And so after the q and I mean, before the q and I got up in front of the audience and I just said, you know, before we start, would everybody that has a vaccine injured child just please stand up? And it was a small theater, it was about 120 seats and like 90 to 100 people stood up. It was almost the whole room. And it felt like that. The air like got sucked out of the room. I felt like I got punched in the Ugh. chest. I really had no idea. I knew that there was this issue. It seemed like a small issue, but more than three quarters of this audience were standing there. And it was this amazing cathartic moment because, you know, that I think I only understood over time as I, I asked that question every theater, every time I ever spoke with Vaxxed, I asked that question. And what was amazing was not only did they stand and the remaining 12 people looking at that, like, oh my God, but all of those people that stood up had for the most part been called liars, that they were crazy, that they were just trying to, you know, that they were just trying to push an agenda. They were also had been imprisoned in their homes because their children can't go out. They're, they'll get into trouble. They'll be, in, you know, inappropriate with a police officer. If they're too big, they could get shot. I mean, all of these things, these parents, what they did is they stood up and they were all looking at each other and were like, my God, I'm not alone. I'm not alone. And you saw them, you know, starting to like exchange numbers and where do you live? And mm -hmm. oh my God, Ooh. we live on the same town or the same street even. And, that's what started this movement. And we, those parents left and started wanting to tell their story. And so we started recording those stories that can be seen at 
uh, vaxxed.com, V-A-X-X-E-D.com, where we posted just all the stories that we would, we, once we got the bus, we just brought parent after parent or kids to tell their story. But for me, the film was only about the MMR vaccine, really, in a fraud that took place at the CDC that I really believe um, if it was ever in court, the world would know that this was a fraud. But um, the parents were telling stories of my daughter died after a flu shot or my, you know, my son was a star athlete and was paralyzed the moment he got the Gardasil vaccine. And I started realizing every single vaccine had this horrific um, population of, of injured people. And so when people were coming up after the film, it was always the same question. Dell, your film's only about the MMR. What about the other, you know, 15 vaccines we give our kids? Or is that the only one that's dangerous? And I couldn't honestly answer that. Though I was hearing all of these other anecdotal stories, and that's when I just decided, you know what? I, I'm going deeper. I'm not going to just stop here. This film isn't it. This is, this is real. There is, a, there is carnage like no one could ever imagine and I want to get to the bottom of it. So the Informed Consent Action Network was really two things. I could do another four hours on how I met Aaron Siri, our lead attorney. He's my partner, really. It was really about, in many ways, uh, creating a nonprofit where I could fund a legal mind who understood this issue like no one else in the world. It's why he's won. It's why you can find depositions of guys like uh, Dr. Stanley Plotkin, who's made more vaccines than anyone alive. In that deposition, just look up, you know, the Plotkin deposition, some form of, you'll see, you can hear Aaron, you only hear him, it's a video camera, but you watch a scientist being taken down a road that believes everything he's doing, and by the end of it, it's like, you know, a few good men, he's, he's ready to scream, you can't handle the truth. Um, so Aaron represents the legal side, and I wanted to bring the media, and our thinking was, We've got to do multiple things. We've got to continue work with legislation. I had been traveling all over the country, speaking at capitals. I still do. I talk to politicians all the time. We have a few bills that we've written that we have are being launched in states all over right now to try and sort of uh, fix some of these problems. Uh, we have, a, you know, we, as I said, have had multiple, multiple lawsuits. We also file over a thousand now Freedom of Information Act requests of the CDC, of the FDA, for people that don't know what that is. Uh, there are employees in the United States of America, the CDC, Tony Fauci, he works for us. And so, for instance, right now, we just got thousands of Fauci's emails because we demanded, we want to see every time that he mentioned, you know, pandemic or COVID-19 or, you know, um, Redfield, the, you know, we had a hunch that he and the CDC weren't agreeing. So every time they're talking to each other and they push back, right? Like they push back. Um, and like, he, he doesn't have to supply that. Like, no, he does. And no we, shit. And eventually they'll be like, well, we're not going to give it to you. And that's when we sue, we sue, we'll, we'll take you to court. You know, Tony Fauci is our employee and we need to see his emails. And guess what? Eventually they, every time no we're, we're now, if anyone wants to help us dig through like 10,000 <laughs> Tony Fauci emails Dude, right now, yes. but those are the types of things we do. Hit, hit, hit me up at caltogreatunlearn.com <laughs> and I'll send you over to, yeah. uh, Dell and his team. So, you know, there's, uh, I always, you know, I said with Aaron and we knew we could win some, and there's real issues, right? You can't just sue 
vaccines are totally protected. There's no other product like it in this country. And I do want to, later on, I want to make sure we explain to people what vaccine court looks like. Yeah. Um, And so up until the moment that Aaron came on the scene and we started really doing this work, there was this belief that you just can't sue anybody. Uh, What we saw though were, were weaknesses in the foundational principles of that moment, the 1986 Vaccine Injury Compensation Act. That's 1986. Pharmaceutical industry says to Ronald Reagan, we're going to stop making all vaccines unless you protect us from liability. And so, you know, they did it. We protected them from liability. All of a sudden, we went from 11 vaccines to like 54 vaccines and climbing. We watched the increase of autoimmune disease and neurological disorders skyrocket exactly coterminously with the growth of that that program. Uh, But we can't sue anybody. Can't sue the doctor. Can't sue the hospital. Can't sue the manufacturer. Um, But there were parts of the law that put responsibility on the government because the government took on the liability and nobody had really looked at that. Everyone was so busy hating the 86 Act and wanting to bring it down, which may not be a bad idea, especially since we're done with it. But what we did was say, wait a minute, what was the government responsible for? And so we went in and started suing. Uh, One of the things, imagine you took liability away from the industry, so they don't have to do safety tests really anymore. They can't be held liable. So what difference does it make if it kills people? Like, honestly, would anyone have fixed the Pinto blowing up if, if, you know, nobody can sue? You know, you just keep going business as usual. And and in this case, even worse, at least you'd stop buying a Pinto. You're just going to buy some other car, but with vaccines, you don't have a choice. It's forced on you by the government. It's mandated to get in school. So you don't even have any of the market forces. You don't have the right to choose a different product or avoid using the product at all. You're being forced to use it. There's no, all liability is taken away, so they don't have to pay for lawsuits. This is why the vaccine program has gotten so because some a behemoth and such a financial cash cow for the industry. It's a perfect, you got a hint of farm. It's a perfect product for them Yes, uh, in every way. It's all upside. But that act put responsibility on the government. And one of the things, just very quickly, our first case was against Health and Human Services because in the 86 Act, it said that Health and Human Services would meet with Congress every two years. We're putting liability on our own government health agency. So every two years, you're going to have to report to Congress and tell us how you have fixed the problems with this product. Remember, the reason they wanted liability protection was they were losing so much money from death and injury from vaccines that they, as they said it themselves, we can't make a profit. That's how bad it was. They make a profit off of Vioxx that kills, you know, 200, 300,000 people. Johnson & Johnson will be just fine with their $3 billion payout for OxyContin and their previous, you know, $3 billion payout for uh, um, baby powder, which we now know had asbestos. These lying, thieving, murdering companies never have a problem paying in court because they make so much money. Now imagine one of their products was so bad they couldn't make a profit. That wasn't lost on the Congress. It wasn't lost on Ronald Reagan. So they said, you are going to actively fix this product. The government, we're going to put government funding. Health and Human Services will meet every two years with Congress and tell us your progress. Uh, additionally, there will be a task force that will be put together that will be run by, basically the task force will be the head of the NIH, the head of uh, FDA, and the head of CDC will all work together to make vaccines safer. 
And so, and that task force will report to Health and Human Services that will report to the Congress. So we sued. It started with a Freedom of Information Act request. We just said, we'd like to see all of the meeting minutes between Health and Human Services and the Congress that's been taking place every two years since 1986. We'd like to see what they did to make vaccines safer. Like what was, you know, what has been worked out? And they refused to answer, and they refused to answer, and they feel we're like again, we're going to sue you because you're our in, you know employees. And sure enough, we sued them, and they had to under you know court stipulation they signed. Uh, we never had a single meeting with Congress. Motherfucker, really? Yeah, not since 1980s. We never did it. We never followed through. We didn't really work. So then we were like, whoa! If they never had a meeting with Congress, then. Were there ever any changes to the problems in vaccines? And that would have been this task force. What happened with that task force? So we foia out of that said, so what about the task force that was supposed to be speaking to you? We'd like to see all of the recommendations that task force made to Health and Human Services. Again, we spent like a year, they're pushing back, not answering, not answering. We're starting to get suspicious. We sue, guess what? Sure enough, court stipulation, we never put the task force together. Essentially, they disbanded it, you know, after two or three years, says, well, we're not going to do this. So the two major provisions that were put in place to evolve these products and fix the problem of death and injury being caused, our government never did it. And so that was, that's just the beginning of, of this sort of um, peeling of this onion Holy that has got shit. us. That's why we have Washington Post, all of us, New York Times, everyone's saying we're spreading misinformation. The truth is, is we are so airtight. We are so solid. There's not a damn thing I say that I cannot, we will stand in, and we will stand in any courtroom and we would love to in a real courtroom and say, let's have this out in court. And so a lot of the cases we're pressing, they never, they, they do settle, right? They do just hand it to us. They sign a stipulation because they don't want precedent made. They don't want us staying in the courtroom proving we're right because then we override Jacobson, which is the big deal right now. That's the 1905 case that when Alan Dershowitz said, I think that they could plunge a needle into your arm, a COVID-19 vaccine, drag you to a hospital, plunge a needle in your arm. There's nothing you can do about it because of Jacobson. I actually debated him on it. I, I reached out to Alan Dershowitz and said, uh, that statement you made, I'd like to debate you on it. And, and to his credit, he did. It's amazing. You can find it on our website. I spent nice. about 30 minutes. That was probably the most nervous I've ever been. I, I was very well coached by Aaron, our lawyer, <laughs> who really, you know, played uh, Dershowitz for a couple hours with me. But it was amazing. And, and in the end, he, he ended up really conceding. You know, I hadn't really thought about those points. Nobody's thought about any of the points on this. And this is, this is the deal. It's been getting a free ride. It's this, it's this foundational principle of modern humanity that we're alive and we're safe because vaccines are so great. And it's just really not true. And it's yeah. built on, it's a religion. It's, it's a religion. It's as, it's, in fact, I think there's probably more facts in the Bible than there are in the background of most of the vaccines we give our children. We've proved um, that they never did a double-blind placebo study, which is the gold standard for all pharmaceutical products. Not one of the childhood vaccines we give our kids, 16 vaccines given in, you know, ultimately 72 total doses uh, by the time they're 18. Not one of those ever was tested against a placebo to establish safety in the pre-clinical trials. It was put on the market without any of that. And so, and, you know, everyone said I was crazy. We're crazy. You're lying. Misinformation. Well, look it. And now all of a sudden 
their argument to me about COVID-19 is like I have New York Times, they all call, you know, you're saying this, this vaccine is dangerous. I said, well, look it, they did it again. This vaccine hasn't been tested for longer than a few weeks. And it's supposed to be tested for years, especially this one. COVID-19 is a brand new technology. I think you could argue it's not even a vaccine. And the world with their own eyes just watched what I discovered in all of our investigations and research we've done over the last four years with our nonprofit and the lawsuit wins. We knew this was true. And what happens the moment the world recognizes, my God, you just jumped out of a trial before proving that it even stops infection or stops transmission, which they're all admitting. Fauci admits it, WHO admits it, Pfizer, Moderna. Yeah, we don't know if it can stop the infection known as SARS-CoV-2 or, and therefore the transmission. Then what good is it? All of that is, I think, why we're seeing, you know, I think almost 50% of doctors in many states are refusing the vaccine. Oh, shit. Uh, certainly 51% of the population are saying, I'm either going to, I'm going to certainly wait and see how this affects other people. But it's the highest sort of vaccine pushback rate the world has ever seen. And I think a lot of that, I mean, I, there's, we're not alone. You know, Bobby Kennedy does great work with Children's Health Defense. Um, Barbara Lowe Fisher with NBIC. So there's other great organizations out there. But all of us together, and I think Vax and the work we've done, we feel really good about the, the wake-up call that I think is happening. And a lot of it was just people seeing it with their own eyes. I think the hubris of this industry to think, oh, we're going to make a vaccine right in front of your eyes and promise it to you. Essentially, they just pulled out that sausage maker and started packing a lot of crap into some skin. And people went, whoa, holy cow, is that how that's done? Oh, and no safety trials? Wait a minute. Hold on a second. It's a really bad move. And I think uh, it's working in our favor. Well, it's beautiful, the work. I mean, I follow your work, obviously. And it's, it's um, you know, for anyone, go to thehighwire.com. And there's, there's a ton of information on there. But one of the things I do want to just acknowledge that people listening right? There's going to be some triggering. Yeah. And so what do you offer to them? Because we vaccinated our kids and we finally slowed down the schedule and stopped and we've had a lot of pushback. Um, and I've got people praying for me because we don't vaccinate our kids anymore and because we're not getting the COVID vaccine and, and all that. And yeah. everyone's, you know, should be free to choose whatever they want. Yeah. Um, it's not necessarily the case, but what do you offer to those of us who have vaccinated? And again, I think every single parent is doing the best they can with the information that they have available. And I think what you're doing is providing more information. Yeah. Um, what do you say to those, those parents out there um, who feel that there's something inside that's like, fuck, I've, I've done something wrong to my kid. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then I guess the follow-up to that is what can they do to help heal what may have been done? Well, I think that, you know, let's take it out of the context because it's, I think it's, it's such an incendiary discussion that's hard for people to be practical about it. I would say, I say basically the same thing as someone that has been cooking in Teflon, you know, the entire time they've been raising their children and only now have discovered that. That's one of the, forget what the, the, the never ending chemical or whatever, one of these, these chemicals okay. that last forever. We now know it's incredibly carcinogenic, super, super dangerous. DuPont, it was the whole movie uh, that was Dark Waters was just out. I mean, that's Teflon, right? Um, I would say the same thing to those people. It's not your fault. 
you know, we've been lied to. And there's a lot of lies in this world. And there's a lot of toxic, toxic stuff going into all of our bodies at a, on a constant basis. And most people have chosen some part of this they're focused on. You know, I grew up a, an environmentalist from Boulder, Colorado. Um, you know, we read labels. You know, we, we go to Whole Foods. We, re, we still read the labels. I want to know what's in it. I don't trust just because a product's on the shelf and FDA has approved it that that means it's healthy for us or our children. We read labels on the bottles we give our children when we're, you know, choosing is it going to be stainless steel. What are the side effects of that or glass or is BPA free plastic really BPA? You know, all of these things, everyone's got their thing. This is happens to be the one place where we sort of in a very religious way did just hand our kids over. We were told that we trust them. Like you don't question a priest and you don't question your doctor. Like they know best. Um, and I can only say that now what I know is that those doctors are, or meanwhile, I think that pediatricians and doctors truly got into medicine to take care of children, but they are so undereducated about this huge thing you're doing with your child, which is injecting them with these products. In fact, the WHO had a meeting last December with all like world leaders in medicine to talk about how do we stop vaccine hesitancy. And the head psychologist, Heidi Larson, got up and she said, one of the biggest concerns we have is that we have a wobbly front line now. Not only are people questioning vaccines, but doctors are beginning to question vaccines. And part of it is because they just have no ability to answer the questions of the parents that are coming through the door. Mm -hmm. And we all know that the reason for that is that, you know, in our education system, whether you're a nurse or you're a doctor, this is her quote, you are lucky if you get a half a day education on vaccinations. I'd been saying it for years and they said I was crazy. The head, one of the head scientists, the WHO just said our curriculum, that is the case. They had a half a day education. They know nothing about this and no ability to talk about it, which is why they drop in this bully position where if you question them, they get angry. They start yelling at you. It's like a bully. They, they don't, they don't have an answer. They don't understand the math. They don't have the problem. Now they're frustrated. They're screaming at you. And then if you don't comply and that sort of fear-based approach doesn't work, then they kick you out of the practice. I mean, this is the state of medicine today. But what I would say to anybody is with everything else, we now know that pregnant women, when we look at the cord blood, there's like 276 toxic chemicals now in your average mother, you know, that's, and that's going into the baby, which is why maybe this vaccine issue has become a bigger deal. Maybe you could have given a baby back 100 or 200 years ago where you're eating essentially organic beef. There's no pesticides and herbicides on your the food, the grass, you know, the, the corn you're eating and the wheat you're eating, you know, there's no 5G, 2G, 4G. There's no, you know, mercury in your water or aluminum in your air or what you, you name it. Yeah. We were, maybe when we were that healthy and we weren't pumped with chemicals already, maybe we could have handled, you know, the, the 15 vaccines you're getting at two months old or, you know, or I guess more like six or seven and then 10, two months later. But when our children are being born, and this is what I think is happening, they are so toxic already. The joke in, in, in medicine is that if you really want to clear the toxins, the metals out of your body, get pregnant. I mean, it's a filter. It literally draws all the metals out of a mother's body, goes into the infant. And I don't mm. think people realize that. 
No, I didn't So what happens if that baby's born into this world and they're already at their absolute aluminum capacity? And the first thing we do on day one of life is give a hepatitis B vaccine that just, just very quickly. I mean, I think if you want to start your investigation of vaccines, just start with hepatitis B. Ask yourself, why does my child need this? This is a sexually transmitted disease or heroin disease. This is only amongst promiscuous sex people, usually prostitutes or multiple partners, or they have a drug addiction. That's who gets hepatitis B. I was the mother, mom's tested. Does she have hepatitis B before she can give birth? We know she's, she's negative. So why are we giving on the first day of life a infant that is somewhere between if they're healthy, eight pounds, if it's a preemie, it's like three pounds, doesn't matter. We're still going to give that vaccine on the first day of life for an issue that, my God, there's no way. That vaccine will wear off in six to seven years. There's no way in six to seven years your child is going to be sleeping with prostitutes or using needles. There's no need for this vaccine. And then when you look at the contents, when you look at the aluminum content in it, did you know that they've never, ever done a study on the safety of injecting aluminum? Never. Doesn't exist. We've never injected aluminum to human beings and had a placebo group and said, you know, which one of these fares better? The only studies they have are essentially rat studies where they fed aluminum to rats. And from the aluminum study in rats, they basically determined that about 25 micrograms of aluminum would be the maximum a child should eat in one day, 25 micrograms. And so from that, they've extrapolated injecting it in almost in many of our vaccines. It's using an adjuvant to send the body into an allergic reaction. So obviously it does something, but this vaccine, day one of life, you know, I would ask anybody, let's just be logical. I really come to this. I think that's why people like the high wire. I'm not, yes, I understand science, but I'm still, it really, I just come from a reasonable place. Just ask yourself, is, you know, you don't have to be a doctor. Would you guess that eating aluminum would be less or more toxic than injecting <laughs> aluminum? Okay. So even if we're going to do across the board and say 25 micrograms safe to eat, do you believe that injecting 25 micrograms? I mean, it, remember, that's the toxic level, 126, and now you're toxic as far as the CDC is concerned. Right. So would you inject that same 25? Because I think most of us would recognize if you have a half a brain right. that- Eating it is going through a digestive system. It's going to pass right through. So little of so, it is bioavailable. Exactly. But yeah. if I inject into a closed system, into my muscles and my blood system, how does it get out? You know, and then if it doesn't get out, what would be the toxic level of that? So wrap your head around that and say, my God, if they were injecting 25 micrograms into a day one old baby that's gasping for their first breath, that would be insane without at least doing science to show that they'd be okay. Well, it's not 25 mm. micrograms. It's not 50 micrograms. It's not 100 micrograms. It's not 200 micrograms. It's 250 micrograms of aluminum injected straight into your baby. 10 times the amount considered to be the edge of toxicity to be eaten in one day, 10 times into a brand new baby. Oh, and guess what? That vitamin K shot, that has a whole load of aluminum too. And most likely you got that on the same day too. And we are shocked that our children are having autoimmune diseases, neurological disorders, brain development disorders, like we've never, ever seen. 
That's where I start this conversation for anybody and for those parents that have done it. If your children, if you're one of those that says to me, hey man, I gave my kids a vaccine, I, they're healthy, great. Absolutely celebrate that, you know? But I would say that, and I don't want people to be paranoid or hypochondriacs. I think that in this world, we've got to just try and remove as many toxins as we can. You're never going to get it all. Something's going to get somebody. I'm not going to say never eat at McDonald's every once in a while. What the hell? Right, you know, right. never have a Coca-Cola every once in a while. Just try to avoid that stuff as much as possible, you know, wherever we can catch it. And know this, FDA and CDC do not give a shit about you. This is the problem of the modern society. This is what I've discovered. They are protecting the industry. And that's when you asked about vaccine court. This is the biggest problem we have. When you sue for a vaccine injury now, you know who you would sue? I don't know who it is actually today because I'm still all in Trump's you know, house, but Alex Azar, Secretary of Health and Human Services. I'm not sure if he's still the guy. I think he is. You're going to sue the Secretary of Health and Human Services for the United States government for the injury to your child. You'd get this COVID-19 vaccine and you, your, your child or you are one of those people that you've seen like having seizures and shaking and it's going days and the woman in her tongue is vibrating. Or you die, your husband died the day after the vaccine. You are going to sue Health and Human Services, the Secretary Alex Azar. And Alex Azar is going to use the Department of Justice lawyers to fight you in court, to defend himself and the vaccine program and say, you're nuts. And there's no proof of the death of your husband five hours after the vaccine. There's no proof that the vaccine does that. You And you've got to provide the science that shows the vaccine did that. Imagine right now, imagine this moment. There is no science. There were no safety trials. You just bailed out weeks into the safety trials. We have no idea whether the deaths that did happen in the, in the trials were because of the vaccine or the seizures or the Bell's palsy. So you're gonna go in. Alex Azar is gonna sit there with a smirk on his face with the best lawyers the, the government has to offer and say, prove to us, where's your science that says that that vaccine caused it? This is what parents of, of injured children have been dealing with for years. You've got to find science. You're not a scientist. You're not a lawyer. But now it's your job to do that. And here's what's so incredibly corrupt about the whole thing. The science you need to prove that there is this connection, that the vaccine can do this, guess who's supposed to do that science? Health and Human Services. Mm. Alex Azar, the very guy you're suing, the very department you're suing, is the one responsible to be doing the safety test. And I ask you, this is like a murder trial where the murderer is the one doing all of your forensics. Do you really think they're going to do the science and provide your ability to sue them so that you can win millions and for the thousands of people out there will win billions, perhaps bankrupt the health system as we know it? If, if they ever admitted that autism is caused by a vaccine, do you realize that we're this generation right now will lead to a million people in America with autism? If they ever admitted that vaccines did that, that would certainly bankrupt our health department. It very well could bankrupt the United States of America. That's how bad this is. And so when people are like, well, what would be the motivation for them to lie? It's everything. Everything. It's everything. Yeah. It is the existence of our, of our government cannot ever admit this. They can't. 
And so that's why one of the things, and this puts me in a difficult position, I don't want to bankrupt the United States of America. So when I'm meeting with politicians, I was like, will you please put liability back on the industry? Please make Pfizer responsible for the COVID-19 vaccine and every other vaccine they have, because eventually Aaron, Siri, and I, we're going to win this. And I don't want to destroy the United States of America. I want to take out the companies that have been lying to the world and been making billions of dollars in this lie. That's where this is going to go. And our government needs to protect themselves. They need to say, liability is back on you. And retroactively, all the time we covered you, if there's any cases, those are going to be yours because we didn't realize what a bag of crap we were taking on when we took liability. And frankly, we just can't be held responsible because if they are... Uh, this thing's going to come crashing down. It's why this is such a super interesting issue and how you see all the manipulations around it. I mean, they own the media. The media's got to keep the propaganda going. Mm -hmm. Tell us all vaccines are great because if this thing falls apart, if we really recognize what has been done here, then heads are going to roll is the understatement of the century. Well, and then people are like, well, what does the media have to do with it? Well, who do you think pays for the media? I mean, those 75, they say between 50 to 75% of advertising and television is now pharma. Uh, what? And, the and, Super Bowl is right, ridiculous. Exactly. The and then, cute and then, little cartoon characters. and Right. And, and the announcement that the vaccinated oh, frontline doctors are the ones in the audience today. And that, I mean, it's just propaganda, propaganda, propaganda. They like were crazy. doing it at the AFC and NFC yeah. championship game. I'm like, can you just like, if you get your vaccination, you get to go to the game. It's like, holy shit. I know. And I got Jim Nance saying, and I'm like, this poor guy, like whether he stands for it or not, it's like, yeah. he's just reading the tagline. Yeah. Vaccinated healthcare workers. Yeah. Yeah, it's a big deal. And, and I think that, you know, as in the high wire is going to get really interesting because like I've said, I, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I don't, I don't give people information I can't prove. I want people to know that if they're repeating something I've said on the show, and hopefully they're on our newsletter so that they're receiving, I'm, I'm transparent with everything I talk about. We provide all of the peer-reviewed science and the lawsuit wins and anything anyone wants to read. If it's in our show. You can look at it and read it yourself and come to your own conclusions. But I want people to know I can repeat that statement and it's backed up by science. But I am really starting to get concerned with this sort of great reset, new world order, um, Klaus Schwab, World Economic Forum, Bill Gates, World, World Health Organization. I, I'm really concerned as a U.S. citizen that uh, we may now have entities that are running our country that don't live inside our borders or certainly don't care about life inside of our borders. And they say it. You know, I'm, I'm one of the things I'm going to play on Thursday is the video by the World Economic Forum. You know, no one will own anything. Everyone will be renters. The United States will never will no longer be the leading superpower in the world. Is it like, really? Huh? Did we all sign up for that? Do you realize that, you know, not to be political, but Clinton Foundation's going to the World Economic Forum, that, the, that these world, our leaders, and some of the talking points I'm seeing, the Build Back Better, written by the World Economic Forum, and their video says the U.S. will no longer be the leading superpower in the world. We should be concerned about that. I mean, not that I need to be, you know, like, a, you know, I kind of like being a leading power, but then it has its flaws and we've done some bad things. <laughs> For sure. But I don't really want to be electing people that are going to hand that power away. And that does appear to be behind this vaccine issue, which was being driven out of the WHO more than it is from inside of our own borders. And remember, Fauci 
is on board of directors for Bill and Melinda Gates projects for vaccinations. And Bill Gates, I mean, just crazy things. You know that he now, I mean, we're all finding out now he owns more private farmland than anybody else in the country. I, I put that with the statement, his number one goal is to reduce population. I'm like, and you own every farm. And it looks like a lot of our aquifers. What is this guy up to? Yeah, and he what well, they want to do away with us eating meat. Right, right. And he's stated that his greatest uh, investment ever was vaccines, a yeah. 20x return. Yeah. I think on $10 billion, yeah. which for those of you at home who don't have a calculator, is $200 <laughs> billion. Dollars. <laughs> the fuck? I know. It's, uh, these things could be very, very, they, sh they are very scary and very intimidating. But it's also... It's so obvious now. I feel like it's so obvious. Okay. Yes, you do. And yes, I do now. Yeah. But there are a lot of people who don't. Yeah. And it's one of the things I want to ask you about. What are some of the sources people besides yourself, right? Right. And Bobby Kennedy, like what is, who are some of the sources out there that people can follow to get really what's happening to learn about the Great Reset um, and, and what exactly that is? Well, I mean, I think you've got to be open to looking around. And, and I'm, I'm cautious to recommend anybody because I, I just can't guarantee what mm. someone else is going to say next. Gotcha. And I wouldn't be, you know, I don't want to say, you know, follow what I'm doing. I mean, one of the things I say on my show is, look, I'm not trying to tell you what to think. You better start thinking for yourself. And if I find out you stopped listening to Rachel Maddow, but now you religiously listen to me and just say whatever I say, then I haven't done my job. I really want people, you need to start doing your own research. You got to really start going to the source as far as you can. And there's so much that's available to us right now. They're trying to clean it off the internet. I mean, they're really trying to whitewash the internet. But at the moment, like when people ask me, where should I start with vaccines? Sure, there's lots of great work at the Highwire. You can go there. You can go to our nonprofit's website, ICanDecide.org. But I would say start with the vaccine insert itself. Take all of us, take all opinion out of this conversation and ask your doctor, say to your doctor, I'd like to, you know, I know you're giving me this vaccine information sheet, which says there's going to be some fussiness and maybe some swelling in the arm, but I really want more. I want the information the manufacturer provided that was wrapped around every vaccine that arrived into your office. Can I read that? Can I read that insert, that disclaimer? Let me read that. Uh, most of the time people tell me the doctor says, oh, I don't have those. Not true. It came, it's, it's literally wrapped around every single one that came through the door. Or then if you press on it, they'll be like, well, I mean, I, I don't think you, you can understand that information, whatever it is, you rarely get it. So know that you can go online and do the same. You can look at the vaccine you're about to give your kid, MMRV, you know, just put vaccine insert MMRV and they're on the CDC website. It'll pop up. You know, I'm pretty sure it's still there and you can read, read the ingredients and read the side effects that they admit to, including death, Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is paralysis and a, a host of other issues. Some of them say diabetes and things like that. And ask yourself, why didn't my doctor talk about this? And if you want to take it a step further and you really want to scare yourself, ask your doctor to list all of the ingredients in the vaccines that were just the one vaccine, for instance, my child's going to get today. Uh, because you've been holding them on a pedestal, right? That eight years of, of schooling that you didn't have, and they're supposed to be really well-educated and looked into this more than you have. Uh, ask your doctor, could you please tell me every single ingredient that's in the vaccine you're about to give my child? I'm going to bet you right now, 
that they can't do it because I've done it with every, everyone's like, oh my God, I asked that question. I said, oh, well, I'll, I could go and look at my book. No, 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 you, you shouldn't need to study any longer. You've been a pediatrician for 20 years now, delivering the same 16 vaccines every day of your life. And you're telling me you don't actually can't list everything that's in it. And all I'm saying is go down the restaurant when that's done, go down a restaurant in the block, ask that waiter that may or may not even be in college. I'd like to know every ingredient in this dish because I have a food allergy and watch that waiter list it for you uh, on a menu, <laughs> on a menu that's got maybe 50 items on it. Yes, okay. Yes. And then ask yourself, do I really want to keep that doctor on a pedestal any longer? Mm. These things matter. They really do matter. And we can't fake knowledge any longer. Those are the types of things. Start asking questions with this COVID-19 vaccine. Stop listening to Tony Fauci. Yes. These, these trials are available. You can, start, you can download the trials themselves and start looking at the information. If you want to go to our website, we're providing these so that you can read what they've said themselves. And what they've said is they don't know if this thing stops infection or stops transmission. They don't know if it, and the biggest issue, and I want to make sure that everyone gets this everywhere I go. The biggest issue we've been covering with the coronavirus vaccine is something called antibody dependent enhancement. This is what we saw in every animal trial. We went and read them. For the last 20 years, they've been trying to make a coronavirus vaccine and failing. For about 15 years, they've been trying to make the mRNA technology work and failing. But in every attempt at a coronavirus vaccine that they put into animal trials, since SARS, there's been a real understanding this would be a cash cow if we could ever pull one of these vaccines off for coronavirus. So multiple drug companies have been at it. Every single animal trial had the same issue. They would give the whatever approach to the vaccine to the animal. Animal looked like the vaccine was safe. They were bouncing around doing just fine. Then they tested their blood and saw that they're having robust antibody production. Oh my God, it looks like we're, we got a hit here. Hmm. But then they go one step further in animal trials than they do in human trials, at least to date. This may be about to change, but it's called a challenge study, meaning we're going to challenge the animal with the actual virus and they inject coronavirus into the animal to see how the vaccine works. And every single time they saw what they describe as antibody-dependent enhancement. And this is what happened. Instead of the antibodies protecting the animal that were created by the vaccine, it grabs onto the virus and draws it into the body faster, proliferates faster, expands faster, sends the body into what's called a cytokine storm, complete immune system shutdown, and what's called, a, they described in most of these cases, a TH2 immunopathology in the lungs. That's the actual term meaning respiratory failure, organ failure, and death. In one case, every cat in the study died. And this is a known issue with this vaccine and every attempt at it. So when they went warp speed into human beings, we showed on our show in the animal trials in the conclusion that we found ones that said we should be very careful moving forward with human trials. That's how diabolical the reaction we're getting in animals. We don't, and they don't know why it's happening. They don't know what it is. They only know that we have a history of this. We had a history with an RSV vaccine program in the 1960s. They tried it on kids. All the kids looked like they were fine, looked like they were safe to run around. Oh, great, the vaccine works. 
Then they came in contact with RSV and every single one of them developed severe upper respiratory conditions and two of the kids died and they realized the vaccine is doing the opposite. It's making people more sick when they come in contact with contact uh, than if they hadn't had it. And then a year ago, just over a year ago in the Philippines, they had Dengvaxia, a dengue vaccine that they gave to thousands of people. It had already been approved to be safe. Everyone doing fine for several weeks, months. Then dengue comes into town and people started dropping like flies. Over 600 people died from what's usually just dysentery and some issues and they get over it. 600 died and they kicked the drug company out. That was antibody dependent enhancement. And so this is something we've been covering. When you watch the high wire, I've been covering this for eight months. It was the first thing when they started saying vaccines, we started looking at all of their animal trials and saying, wait, whoa, whoa, hold on a second. There is a real problem with this one. And it's such a big problem that even Peter Hotez, who was trying to make when he works at Baylor College uh, here in, in Texas, he's been trying to make a coronavirus vaccine. He met in front of our Congress seven months ago and said, uh, folks, I know everyone wants to rush this vaccine. This is one we shouldn't rush because we have this problem of immune enhancement. So what does that mean? That means that, you know, you, to me, if you're going to do a trial on human beings, there's really one major question you're asking. Have we figured out how to overcome this antibody-dependent issue? Or did it only happen in animals and we're not going to have this problem in human beings? Like, but we did have this problem with RSV. We did have this problem with Dengvaxia. We certainly can't give people a product that next year they're walking along and a common cold coronavirus comes up and they drop dead because it made it deadly. And when you read the literature in these trials, both Moderna and Pfizer address it. They say, we're aware of antibody-dependent enhancement, or they might call it immune enhancement or pathogenic priming or the different names. Uh, but they both admit our trials were unable to determine whether or not the vaccine will cause that issue. Uh, more studies will need to be done in the future. And it's because it's such a short trial, too, right? And right. then they abandoned the trial. Exactly right. <laughs> but more studies need to be done. Like, uh, so... And if we find out we have it over, what does that mean? What it means is these millions and millions of people getting this vaccine right now could be taking a death vaccine. I don't want to understate it. Am I being dramatic? Sure, I'm being dramatic. But here is the point. There is a theoretical chance based on every animal trial we look at that everyone receiving this vaccine will be walking down the street one day and what should have been a mild coronavirus, which this one actually technically is too, it's killing just under 0.4% of the population, 99.6% of us have that get it have what's being described as a mild, uh, mild symptoms. And the ones that are dying, I think the numbers like 92% are have two point something comorbidities. Correct, super duper sick, like literally on their deathbed with you know not just cancer but cancer and heart disease or COPD, heart disease and diabetes. I mean these are these are the people and over that you know in that high high risk group. It's a tiny group of people, uh, but imagine. In order to, I guess, protect that group of people that even without coronavirus probably won't live for another 365 days, if we're being honest. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's moving that, that moment up the same way any flu would. Any virus is going to kill these people, which is what we're seeing. We're seeing a mild virus that kills super sick people. Um, but what's going to happen to the millions of people? What if... Next year's coronavirus comes along, it's mutated a little bit, and the vaccine underperforms, causes this 
immune enhancement, we could watch right now 0.4% death rate. What if it's 5%? What if it's 10%? What if 40% of people that come in contact with next year's coronavirus die if they've had the vaccine? So what this brings to mind for me is on your show, you mentioned Bill Gates saying that the next one that's coming could be 10 times worse. Maybe he's right. And this is what he's talking it about. It very but, well could be. But he's, right. he doesn't realize that. Or he does realize. Who knows? Does. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I want to... I. I like to think that Bill Gates thinks he's doing good in the world, but remember, population reduction is his number one goal. So is he willing to accept that in, in different spaces? Is it all really about health? Is it really just that if people are super healthy, they're just going to have less kids, which I really kind of want to challenge the, the reasoning behind that, but okay. Um, Why are people yeah. taking the vaccine um, when the, the survival rate is so high, especially amongst, you know, let's call it the, the, the healthy normals. Is it because they feel like that's, the, I mean, again, we don't know because we're not them, but speculating, is it because they feel like if we do it, if everyone gets vaccinated, everything will open back up and we'll I think so. go I back mean, to normal. It, look, that's the sales pitch. Yeah. It's, it, it's on your news 24 hours a day. Every single news agency in America, as far as I can tell, is promoting an experimental product. We wouldn't have done this with an AIDS drug. We wouldn't have done this with a cancer drug. And those were people that were dying of those diseases. These are people that are all going to survive. They're going to be just fine. Most of them won't even know they had it. The symptoms are so faint that you need a, a test to know that you even have the which is arguably not even illness, an which, test. which is maybe not even accurate. But all of those things, you're taking really healthy people and every news agency, I hope, you know, should we see the issues? We are seeing people die. We are seeing people hemorrhage and have seizures. And that's only the beginning. Um, I think that all of these news agencies should be held accountable. I think that Tony Fauci and the Cuomo's of the world and everybody that promoted taking a product before it had been proven to be safe. Um, I think that they should have that moment. Look, I pray I'm wrong. I really do. I, I, I pray that I want to see everybody survive. I love my brothers and sisters. It's not their fault that they're being misled. I used to trust Rachel Maddow too. I used to be a fan of San Sanjay Gupta until I learned and really got into a profession that had me looking at the literature and doing the reading myself. And that's what's changed everything. Um, there, we should be eliminating theoretical possibilities. Uh, and in this case, I think it's a theoretical probability yeah. because it happened in all of your animal trials. You can't just say, well, let's see how it goes. No, these are innocent people. Um, and I think we're seeing it. I think we're, and we're watching today. It's amazing. We're doing this today. Facebook, Instagram today is now going to shut down any meme, anything, any post that talks about the vaccine, not stopping the infection, which they've already admitted. They don't think it can. So I don't know how that's misinformation. Okay. They've said, we're going to not allow that statement. They're going to stop anybody talking about vaccine injury, which means all of the people right now that are taking this in the public, it's outside of the trials. The trial's now us. Now they're not even going to be able to tell us, our neighbors, hey, I actually got jacked up by this thing like we're seeing. I'm not anti-vax. How many of us have seen these posts on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter? I, I'm not anti-vaccine. I'm just telling you. I got this vaccine. I was really sick. I started having seizures. You know, some of them say I'm not getting the second shot or I had the second shot or my husband really believed in this thing. He's dead now. And five minutes after it, started feeling really bad, rushed to ICU, blood platelets dropped. No one knew what to do. Died four hours later. All of those posts are going to be taken down. 
That means if this is Nazi Germany, Facebook and Twitter and I mean, Facebook and Instagram today and these social media agencies are saying, we will block anyone that says that there's a concentration camp in this country. That's what's just happened. These are very real situations. And they are now saying we will not allow anybody to speak their truth. That's super fucked up. It's really, really, these are just scary Just getting times. pushed. That censorship is getting pushed further and further. Yeah. And I know we're, we're, we've definitely gone over, which has been amazing. And we're going to have another podcast about the Great yeah. Reset and all that. <laughs> I'm looking forward to unpacking that. But I've got some quick hitting, quick, uh, quick hitting things that I okay. want you to talk all right. about. I'll, I'll try to keep it short. It's not my talent. <laughs> I want I want you to talk about um, the work that Dr. Scott Jensen's been doing up in Minnesota. And again, so just in the interest of time, yeah. let's try really to- quickly. Like in a nutshell. Scott Jensen is a senator uh, up in Minnesota. Uh, I think a year or two ago, he won do like best family doctor of the year. Okay, so this guy's, I mean, he's a Superman, right? A brilliant guy who- very early on in this um, pandemic, we recognized that he was saying some of the same things we were. He immediately blew the whistle on the fact that the CDC changed how we were recording deaths. Um, they changed the death certificate application. And this is huge. This is a really, really big deal because it's driven, it's clearly driven the numbers up. And here's how it works essentially. It used to be, and we all know this, right? If you think of, we've all had some family member die of cancer or something in the hospital. I want you to ask yourself, what did they really die of, right? Yeah, it was cancer. You were told it was cancer, but didn't they go into the hospital with a seizure or a heart attack? They had a heart disease. And then you found out that they, they caught something that gave them pneumonia, right? They got some sort of virus while they're in the hospital or their immune system isn't working. But so many times people with cancer or heart disease or any of these things, they die of pneumonia, right? And the pneumonia is caused by a virus or a bacteria. That's just the simple fact of the matter. But what we're told when they died every year until this year was, well, they died from complications of cancer. That's what it says on the death certificate. They had cancer. They didn't have an immune system. The trivial cold killed them, but we're not going to, you know, we know. And it may be listed in there. You know, they had. But it's RSV. the underlying. It's the underlying. They were yeah. on their deathbed with cancer. Yes. Anything could have killed them, mm -hmm. you know. And so we'll say, yeah, they, they got the flu. Turned into pneumonia. They died. Well, but it always, the cause of death is cancer. The cause of death is heart disease, right? Well, immediately, in a, in, in a shocking timeline that I will probably spend the rest of my life fixated on. I'm getting off, so this is why every answer is so hard to answer. It's okay. But I looked into this, just, I was just about to give a talk a couple of weeks ago. Tony Fauci, on February 17th of last year, makes the public statement that in America, this will be, um, what was the word? Uh, not trivial, but this will be- Minuscule? Minuscule, that was the word. Yep. A minuscule event in America. Tony Fauci says that on February 17th. Then Bill Gates, who is one of his bosses and, and is the top funding body of the WHO when, when, America, when we pulled our money out, Bill Gates is second up there. He was number one. But Bill Gates, 17th, Fauci says, yeah, nothing burger. Then- 28th, so like 11 days later, Bill Gates makes this outrageous statement. I think that this is the once in a century virus we have been planning for, that we've been worried about. He hands millions of dollars, is my understanding, within a couple of days, and the WHO to the WHO, who then backs that statement up a few days later. 
So February 28th, he totally overrides Tony Fauci, our leading authority, and says, no, the scientist is wrong. Me, the computer guy that can never fix the virus in my own computer system, <laughs> yes. is now determining that this is the <laughs> pandemic we've all been waiting for once in a century. That's the 28th. On March 4th, the CDC releases brand new guidelines on how we're going to report COVID-19 on our death certificate. And this was the change. Instead of where the death certificate would say the cause of death is heart disease, the cause of death is, is cancer. Sure, underlying factors, pneumonia, all of that will be on there. Let's flip it around. Now the cause of death will be COVID-19 and the underlying issues would have been the heart disease or the cancer. That's a gigantic change in any way that cannot see what that's going to do to your numbers is high on crack. I mean, you've got to recognize, oh my God. And here's my point. I'm not saying, well, first of all, I think that that's a terrible way to data collect because <laughs> when we come back to try and understand what happened here, we're going to have a really hard time unpacking this because we've hidden the fact that they were dying of other issues and put on top. And for many, they may just say COVID-19. Nothing says that they have to mention those other issues. Cause of death is COVID-19. It even goes as far to say, even if you assume it's COVID-19, but haven't done a test, put COVID-19 as the cause of death. And then it has this little caveat. And by the way, any incorrect statements will not be reviewed by the health department. And by the way, right. how much was each COVID admission? And this is something that Scott Jensen's pointed out too. So not only do you drive these numbers up, but you know, each, each time you called it COVID, we're now hearing numbers as high as that's like an additional $77,000. The numbers I remember reporting that I can say I saw with my own eyes was $13,000 13, like, for being brought in with COVID, whereas it was like a thousand or two for flu. Mm -hmm. COVID gave you this $11,000 hit. And then if you could put them on a ventilator, yeah. you got another $26,000. Now it I sounds like- the number may be bigger, but I'm confident in reporting the eleven to $13,000 for COVID plus 26,000 for the ventilators. And the ventilators killed nine out of 10 people. And remember, they weren't treating this the way we treated every other coronavirus since the dawn of man. If any other year, you would have walked and said, I'm having some trouble breathing. I'm not feeling so good. I feel like I got a cold or something. They would immediately put you on oxygen, but not this time. This time they said, no, 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 don't give anybody oxygen because that'll, that'll atomize, aerosolize the virus and spread it around the hospital. So deny them oxygen. This is what they did. So every patient coming in that would normally get oxygen was denied oxygen until it got bad enough and their O2 dropped enough that then they put them on propofol, which killed Michael Jackson. They drop you into a coma and put you on a ventilator. And when you talk to the Holy nurses and shit. doctors that are speaking out about this, what they, here's another crazy thing nobody talked about. I really haven't even touched on it is that they're like, we're running out of all of the drugs that put you in a coma because for some reason, these bodies are fighting the ventilator that they were literally fighting for their lives while being forced into a coma. Uh, and they were having to use more and more drugs to keep them under. Like oh, we've never had to do that fuck. before. I mean, it's so horrifying. This, we will, I pray that they don't so cover this up that we can never, I don't, I know doctors are probably trying to do their best and they're getting some really bizarre orders from those in charge. That's right. 
you know, but you deny them oxygen, that got you another $26,000 bump to put them on a ventilator. And then, you know, then I have to look at how many pensions did we get rid of when the nine out of 10 of those elderly that were sick died? You know, when you look at these states, when you look at New York, you look at California, we're wiping out our elderly. And, and it's ironic that they're saying that's who we're supposed to protect when Cuomo's under fire right now for underreporting the deaths in nursing homes. He wrote a law literally saying you have to take patients that are sick into the nursing homes. You can't deny them. <laughs> I mean, that was crazy. That was the one place, if there was one place you knew we needed to keep COVID out of. And instead, he made a law forcing them. They could not deny patients that were sick from coming to the nursing home. These things are, they're just undeniable. These are facts. Someone can sit, I'm sure someone's listening right now, ready to rip my head off. Like, how can you say these things? I wish it was a radio Colin show. You know, I wish it was. <laughs> and then bring your proof. I mean, I, I've got all the proof that, you know, and Scott Jensen. So he's done great work. I, I got a little off track, but he really pointed out these death certificate rewrites, he's now uh, doing an audit in Minnesota. And I believe an audit by independent uh, perspectives should be done in every single state and probably every country around the world and say, what happened here? Did they really die of COVID-19? We knew, we saw very early on out of Italy, the, it, the health minister for Italy said after they went through that crisis, and it was really horrific, a lot of people died, that really they said, you know, we could really only pinned down that 12% of these deaths were actually COVID. Everybody else were really sick with other issues. And you'd have to say they died of those issues. That's 12%. I mean, if you just take this number, where are we at? 400,000 right now. Let's take 12% of that. What are we at? 48,000 deaths, realistically. Yeah. That, that mathematical shift in how we record deaths was able to build a pandemic that may not really even be there. And what was you know, it? The flu's down 90% this year? Disappeared. Gone. I mean, gone. Which <laughs> brings me to, uh, by the way, United Healthcare. I remember you reporting had a $2 billion fourth quarter. At least I think Dr. Jensen said that. Yeah. Um, talk to me about hydroxychloroquine and, yeah. and ivermectin. Briefly. Really briefly, I think that this, I think it's the biggest story of this entire uh, pandemic or whatever you want to call it. I think that every scientist you talk to that you, that really used what would be, there was really two protocols. This started and we report again, we reported on this, I think before any news agency in the world, we saw this guy Didier Rayut in France. Uh, he's like the Fauci of France, a virologist. I think he's named 40 viruses himself. Like he's that type of guy, like discovered 40 new viruses, super big deal. He started running studies immediately. There was actually, and when we looked at it, we found that even back in 2005, the NIH with Tony Fauci discovered that SARS could be killed with um, hydroxychloroquine. I mean, this was something the NIH, they'd already done studies on it and showed, wow, not, they said, not only does it kill the virus, it's, it is also a great prophylactic against the virus. This was 2005. So that wasn't lost in DEA, right? He started running trials using um, hydroxychloroquine and zithromycin in China. Huge success. I think he was saying I'm having 98% uh, survival rate now using uh, these, um, this combination. And then in America, really the big guy was uh, Vladimir Zelenko in New York. To also, and he, he shifted the protocol a little bit. He went with uh, hydroxychloroquine, azithromycin, but he added zinc. 
Um, and I think zinc really for anyone out there, like at least take zinc, take some vitamin D, take some zinc. And I would recommend quercetin because that works like hydroxychloroquine. What we've discovered is HCQ opens up the cell so that the zinc can get inside and kill the virus if it's inside your cells. That's how Zelenko describes it. Uh, quercetin also opens up your cells so you can do that naturally. But again, as Zelenko, I just interviewed several times, but I was just up in uh, D.C., he said 84% of my high-risk patients never went into a hospital. I reduced those people that all should have gone into hospital on ventilators. 84% never even went in because of my treatment. He said that means we can reduce this by at least 84% of the deaths. He said that means that 250,000 at that point I was interviewing him um, never had to die. That we killed them because of uh, this what became a political football in many ways. I think it's more than that, but certainly the moment that um, Donald Trump said, I like this hydroxychloroquine thing. And I was listening to an interesting interview just uh, a couple of days ago, and it wasn't about hydroxychloroquine. I think it was about opening the schools or something else. And the person said, the wrong man had the right idea. Uh and it really has stuck with me, the wrong man. Um, I don't care what side of the political spectrum you're on. Is it possible that because of the hatred of Donald Trump, what if some of these things he was right about? What are we gonna, how do we rectify the fact that because it was him saying it had to be wrong, um, the wrong man said it. And so what tragedy, how many people are dead because the wrong man saw the right treatment or spoke about the right treatment. You know, it's, it's, I'm not going to say he's the right man. I'm just saying, I think it's a really powerful thought. Like we are we so angry and so vitriolic that if our, if our enemy was handing us a life-saving treatment, would we turn it down? Yeah. Because I think that's what's just happened. Well, yeah. Hydroxychloroquine all around the world, thousands. There's now uh, over 195 trials and studies that show success with hydroxychloroquine. Can you get it here in the States anymore? You can. In fact, um, the thing to do, and this is Dr. Simone Gold, who ran that uh, Frontline Doctors that uh, event that stood in front of the Supreme yes, Court. Yes. So, so Frontline Doctors, let me try and remember. It's uh, You could probably find it, but I think it's frontlinedoctors.org or America's Front, here it is, America's frontlinedoctors.com or .org. Go to their website and they have a tele- medicine link that you click on a doctor will contact you and they will you know ask you some questions if you do have covid they will send you hydroxychloroquine wherever you are in the country it's really incredible so that's available there ivermectin we have you know i forget his name brilliant doctor though stood up in front of our congress just a few weeks ago i mean almost crying at how much success they're having with ivermectin. I remember and, this, yes. And then yet, you know, he said, I had to listen to the opening person, this politician, say that somehow I'm a hack. The best doctors and scientists in the world are on my team. We are here, we are saving lives, and statements like that are getting people killed. And the moment he claims ivermectin, now there's, now there's pharmacies that are just, you can't get the ivermectin. Uh, great Dr. Uh, Richard Bartlett here in Texas used budesonide, which is an asthma inhaler. He said he started, he just thought, let me look at him. And apparently this is, uh, Taiwan has had almost no deaths at all. 
And he found out that they were using an inhaled steroid. So God, that makes sense. In our own ER, we have, you know, budesonide. So he started using um, inhalers with budesonide uh, on people that were on their deathbed and pulled them out of it and just took the steroid right to the issue in the lungs. All of these things and, you know, together and apart are all successful treatments. And yet we've been sold on the one product that never went through a safety study, right? I mean, hydroxychloroquine has been proven to be safe for 70 years, 70 years. People have been taking it every day of their lives that have lupus or rheumatoid arthritis or live in places with malaria, which, by the way, are having really low rates of COVID-19 infections and deaths because they use a prophylactic for that by accident that they're using for malaria. These things, this is the science is there. Mm -hmm. And anyone that says otherwise, I think should go to prison. I think that Cuomo basically outlawed HCQ. So you're making all of your elderly sick, you're sending the virus into your nursing homes. And then when they get to the hospital, you're not allowing them any treatments, you're denying them oxygen, you're putting them on a ventilator. And then we find out that they're writing do not resuscitate orders for everybody that comes in. Now it's hopeless. They, if they die, they die. Don't resuscitate them. These things are going to be written about and it is going to be as bad as the Salem witch trials. But these treatments are available. And I recommend to anybody, if, you know, I've had a couple of people around me that really did have an odd issue with this. And all of them, hydroxychloroquine, azithromycin, zinc, boom, gone, fine. Pulled out just fine. Um, and, um, or whatever you use. I mean, I think that some form of zinc, vitamin D is a huge, huge player in this. Everyone should be taking vitamin D right now. You're definitely not getting enough of it. You're not out in the sun. It's the middle of winter. But um, these are crimes against humanity. And there, we could get into the details of why would they deny that. Number one, it's illegal to have an emergency use authorization of a vaccine if there's a, an available treatment hmm. that can treat people. Mm -hmm. So they could not have a viable treatment or they couldn't force release this vaccine uh, early the way they did. So that's just one of the many things. And the cost is prohibitive. And it, I mean, it, the cost is ridiculously slow. I think yeah. hydroxychloroquine is a couple of bucks. And it leads to, you know, as we finish this up, it really points to, I think, what I've discovered of, of, of why vaccinations, why why am I fixated on vaccines? What is it? What is it about this? It's it's a scam, and you're watching the scam right now. And here is the scam. Just think about it from a profit base. We all know that money gets involved in decision making. Now, if you have a treatment that can take care of the 0.4 percent, remember, 99.6 percent of us will have the sniffles. That's a known fact. Now, it's the world number. I can show you worldometer. I can give you multiple sources. 99.6 people are having the sniffles. 0.4% are serious or critical. So if you have a treatment like hydroxychloroquine, azithromycin, and, or ivermectin, or a combination, some people are using a combination of those things, and you can take care of that 0.4%, done deal. We're, we're, it's over. We don't have to do anything. But think about how much money do you make. Let's go ahead and go with... with um, um, trying to think of the name, right? Regeneron. No, whatever the new one is that they are using, which is a total turkey, but it's like 3000 bucks pop. Okay, let's let you make your money. $3,000 for a treatment of whatever drug works. You're still only getting $3,000 from 0.4% of the population. But if you can sell the idea of a vaccination, think about this log line. 
Imagine, I, th I think about them sitting in boardrooms trying to figure this out. Like, yeah, it's great, man. I mean, 0.4% of 7 billion people. It's a, lot, still, of people. It's a lot of money, man. It's a lot of money. Yeah, it's a lot of money. But hold on a second. I got a pitch for you. How about a product we pitch it like this? This is because that small group of people that are so sick, everybody else has to take a product to protect them. So instead of selling the 0.4% of people, our product is sold to the 99.6% of people that don't effing need it. Exactly. I can't imagine the roar in the room that must have been, holy, holy shit! shit! <laughs> I mean, that's the Sizzler! <laughs> it's brilliant, man. It is totally genius. And if you think I'm wrong, ask yourself why the moment this thing starts, if it is a deadly pandemic, why Tony Fauci was so sure from the very beginning a vaccine is our only way out. How did he know that the great scientific minds on this planet and every university across the planet would not be able to come up with a treatment? How did he know that? Mm. You know, they would only be able to come up with a product that the 99.6% would have to use. And that is going to be a multi-billion, if not trillion dollar product. And, and that is the takeover of pharma. It's a direct, as, a, as we look at control of this world and probably a future discussion, mm -hmm. you have got pharma and big tech combining. Zuckerberg's invested in, in drugs and vaccine companies. They're isolating. They're keeping you from being able to speak. Freedom of speech is disappearing by big tech. Big tech is going to track you. They're going to have the vaccine passport. They're going to have the phone app that allows you on a plane or not, or whether you're vaccinated, all of these things, all of the tracking technologies, the 5G, everywhere this is going, those companies have just merged with pharma and they're together. You realize how incredibly powerful, how incredibly dangerous. Before any of this happened, I've been saying in my talks, pharma is the largest contributor the largest lobby in the United States of America. Okay, it has been for several years. They outspend oil and gas two to one. For the last decade or so, pharma has been putting twice as much money into every campaign of every politician in this country. We fight wars in the Middle East for the money that they pour in from oil and gas. What is pharma going to get? That's what I've been asking my audiences for the last several years. What do you think they're buying? They're buying you. This whole thing, this pandemic, I said before it happened, they are going to come up with a way to scare you into mandatory vaccinations, into adult vaccinations. None of this has ever been about kids. I assure you they're not outspending oil and gas to get the point, you know, 2% of unvaccinated kids or 3%, whatever it was. We've got to get them vaccinated. No way. They want you. They want you lined up on a yearly basis for COVID-19 vaccines that are going to make them hundreds of billions of dollars. And that's just one. There's about 2,700 approved vaccines or 270 approved vaccines thousands and thousands in trials. And this mRNA vaccine approach, if they get away with it, they can produce it immediately. They can start vaccinating you for every bacteria and every virus, millions of them, by the way, on this planet, and charging you for it, making your government fear it. And we are about to become human pincushions or human ATM machines for a powerful takeover. I mean, think about it. Look at it. We don't have a president. 
We don't have dictators. We don't have prime ministers. They're all deferring to their health departments for the decisions that are destroying our jobs, destroying our economies, destroying our schools, causing addictions and suicides and everything. The world right now is being run by bureaucratic doctors. And you should ask yourself if you think that's going very well. I've got one final question for you. What gives you hope? Mm. Like I said, you know, I, from the beginning, you know, my, my father broke out of jail and created a beautiful life out of that tragic moment. I've had tragedies, you know, houses burned down. Um, I see this much differently than most people in that I know where we were. Five years ago when I just started on in this conversation was just a baby. I was wet behind the ears. I'm telling Andy Wakefield, I don't know how I'm going to debate. What if a doctor comes up? And he said, oh, don't worry. They're the easiest people to debate because they don't know anything. <laughs> you know? But um, when we started, they were saying that the, the vaccine hesitancy uh, rate was somewhere around 5%, 3 to 5% across America, parents that were either skipping vaccines or delaying vaccines. Um, the beginning of last year, that was up to 40% of parents across America are now skipping or delaying vaccines. Wow. And when I see the New York Post saying that 51% are denying the COVID-19 vaccine, and I see the debacle that this rollout is and the lies and the, you know, when I see headlines, like I'm seeing all the deaths happening after vaccines aren't caused by the vaccine. I mean, I, you know, I know enough about PR to know that that is a terrible headline. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is not going to sell anything or the latest one. Yeah. The vaccine is going to make you really sick, but that's proof that it's working. Dude. It's right? like 1984. <laughs> like you've got to be kidding it's me. It's crazy. So I have a lot of hope because I think that, first of all, there's a greater intelligence and, and beauty and power that, ha mm -hmm. that has our best interests in mind. And I think what we're seeing is the darkness of those that I think they mean well. These are God complex people. Bill Gates, I think he really does think he's going to save the world. I think he thinks, you know, once he reduces population and gets everybody injected on a, on a yearly basis and eating, you know, genetically modified foods that grow 10 times as fast as natural foods. And we're all on fake meat instead of real meat. And he's blocking the sun, you know, with his atomized aluminum in the air. Right. Once the, he gets the world dialed in exactly where God obviously effed everything up. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Everything's going to be all right. But I think it's becoming obvious to a growing, huge body of people that that is crazy. And I think their headlines prove that they're losing this battle. And it means they're, they're going to get ugly. They're going to censor us. They're going to arrest us. They, you know, they will use every tactic that a falling Nazi Germany attempted or a falling Soviet Union. But book burning and censorship and, you know, oppression are only signs the end of a regime. And I think that we're moving into a beautiful place. And we've just got to... Like, we, you know, I've stood there with my wife in the beautiful moment of giving birth. It was scary as hell. And I wondered if doing this at home was the right idea a couple of times. Yeah. But when it all came, you know, to that end, that beautiful moment, you realize we had to go through that. And we are in a blessed, blessed time. 
I think that we are surrounded by advanced souls. And mm-hmm. I know you're feeling that in the areas we're living in. We're attracting true friends. We're recognizing who our friends are. We're recognizing those that really truly are aligned with our dream for the future. A dream that really understands how powerful we are as a species, but also as spiritual entities. And I think that in the end, um, all of these things are just the birth pangs of that light that I think our parents, some of us who were, you know, had hippies as parents and, you know, that age of Aquarius, I think it's upon us. Mm. Uh, and we're about there. So don't be disillusioned and certainly stop wasting your time bitching yeah. and being depressed. I think we need to open up, really start seeing uh, the beauty all around us and being grateful for it because that grace, we need that energy now. They want us in fear. They want us like scared rats scurrying into traps. Stop scurrying. Stop running. Get rid of the fear. uh, And just start listening to that intuition inside of you. I think every one of us is being guided. You don't all have to be Dell Big Trees or Andy Wakefields or whoever it is that's out there. Um, all I ever did was just keep taking one step in front of the other as I seemed guided to do it. Um, if we all do that, it may be something as simple as just talking to your sister that you've been avoiding this conversation, or you see that pregnant woman in the store and you think, you know, I don't really feel guided to go over and just ask her if she's talked thought about vaccines and really read the ingredients in them. And I, I always, when I say that, I want to be clear, I'm not saying walk up to every pregnant woman. That, that would be a mandate. What I'm saying is walk up to those or speak to those you're guided to. I don't walk up to every pregnant woman. Only when I get that hit, something tells me that one, go talk to her. And you know what? More than nine out of 10 times, the reaction is the same. That's really weird. I just started thinking about that today, or I just read an article. They were open to it. Put up your antenna. Start being open to your moment. That life-changing moment, maybe one person. If we all start listening to that guidance that I think is inside of all of us, there is no darkness in the world that can control that light. Beautiful. You said, and by the way, I'll, I'll finish with this. We uh, had dinner together at our friend Mickey's house right around yeah. New Year's. And something you said was really funny, but was really true. It's when people wake up to what's going on, it's, a, it's really sticky. Yeah. You know, we don't, lose them to the, we don't lose them back to the other no. side. It's like, once you wake up to what's going on, yeah. you're good. And so it, it's, it's been beautiful to walk this path with you and our other brothers yeah. and sisters here in Austin. And thanks so much for coming on and- this is awesome, man. Let's do it again. And then to all the people out there that are sitting here and, and listening, you know, thank you for taking the time. Thank you for caring. Thank you for being moved. And, you know, that, that right there is changing the world. Perfect. Love you, brother. Love you too. You've been listening to The Great Unlearn. For more information, check out the show notes or head over to thegreatunlearn.com for additional episodes and information regarding events, retreats, and the TGU store. If you like what you heard today, please click subscribe and share this with friends who might enjoy our platform. Don't forget to leave that five-star rating and review as it really helps us spread the love and unlearning. You can find me on Instagram at cal.callahan 
and on YouTube under The Great Unlearn. Thanks for listening to The Great Unlearn, and we'll talk soon. No, no different, only different in your mind. You must unlearn what you have learned.